again to the Raw Attitude Podcast on the Questionable Endeavor Network, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler, Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. First of all, a quick apology for the fact that it's been so long since the previous episode of the show, but quite frankly, the reason is because the writing for this episode ended up being over 15,000 words and 24 pages in Microsoft Word, so it's going to be a doozy. I also have to apologize for my voice. I've been sick the past few days, so if I sound a little stuffier than usual, that's the reason. But fans, some good news. We have a very special treat for you this week. Joining this episode of the show for a record third time is none other than our good friend Adam from the Rundown Wrestling Podcast, which is, of course, also a member of the Questionable Endeavor Network. So, Adam, would you mind refreshing the fans' memories as to what the Rundown is all about and why they should be listening to it, or, as an alternative, watching it since you broadcast live on youtube every thursday night i am a special treat thank <laughs> you for having me for the third time i'm glad to be the, the to set that record for you this time uh the rundown wrestling podcast is a weekly uh weekly wrestling show it's me and jason and sometimes troy and sometimes andy and sometimes your good friend raccoon reigns he's, he's a great uh, friend of mine just talking about the week that was in professional wrestling so we uh just kind of uh, give our takes on how things are going on Monday Night Raw and Tuesday Night SmackDown. And if there's a pay-per-view coming up this week, of course, we have our TakeOver, da- uh, takeover San Antonio. Not TakeOver Dallas. That was, that was before. TakeOver <laughs> San Antonio and our Royal Rumble Predictions episode coming up this week. Uh, that is every Thursday night. Uh, like you said, we do broadcast on YouTube uh, while we record. And then that goes up to uh, Stitcher, Podomatic, iTunes, Google Play later on that evening. Would you care to make a prediction for the 2017 Royal Rumble winner while you're on here? Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb uh, and say Doink the Clown. Fanta- I think that's an obvious choice, yeah, for sure, for sure. My money's on Finn Balor. That's that's just my bold prediction, but uh, but of course, that's that's the present day, and we're here to talk about the nostalgia factor. But again, Absolutely. Yeah, the, run, the Rundown Wrestling Podcast, if you want that, that sort of week-to-week in the WWE and uh, occasionally TNA, then by all means, if- definitely check out the Rundown. TNA if they do something particularly stupid. Of course, yeah. Oh, broken Matt Hardy. All right. (laughs) And on a related note, our good friends at the New Blood Rising podcast have joined the Questionable Endeavor Network as well. Indeed. Indeed they have. They they have. That was a surprise to me. You may recall, actually, that William Rankin appeared on episode 23 of this fine podcast, and Martin Dixon has appeared on episodes 14 and 22, in addition to creating the logo for the Raw Attitude podcast. So definitely be sure to give them a listen to, because they're awesome guys. And again, that's the New Blood Rising podcast, currently recapping every ECW pay-per-view ever, so you certainly don't want to miss out on that. Yes, and we're very happy to have them aboard. Absolutely. And so with that being said, Adam... Are you ready to get into the festivities? I am. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. And not for the reasons that people might think. 
Yes. Oh my God. The reason you're joining for the, the reason you wanted to join for Raw, I should say, is definitely a great reason, and we'll we'll get into that in a little bit. But first, we're going to touch off with KOTR. So normally, I tend to focus obviously on Monday Night Raw with brief recaps of pay-per-views if they occur the night before. However, King of the Ring '98 is now upon us. I feel this show deserves a full recap all to itself because number one. I think this is probably the greatest King of the Ring pay-per-view they've ever done. And number two, there are some classic moments on this show, specifically during the Hell in a Cell match, so I think it deserves complete coverage before we jump into this recap of Raw as well. And so with that being said, it is Sunday, June 28th, 1998, and we are live from the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, also known as the Igloo, in front of a sold-out crowd of 17,087 fans. So strangely, the poster for this event features Sable standing next to a blood-soaked guillotine with the tagline, (laughs) Off With Their Heads. I suppose that sort of kind of makes sense if we're talking about the powers an actual king could have, but in terms of a wrestling pay-per-view, it isn't the most logical poster, especially since, of all people, I wouldn't necessarily associate Sable with bloody carnage. Maybe her (laughs) present-day husband, but not her. Not her. Mm -hmm. It It does make for a good transitional graphic, though. Yes, that is true. That is true. They had some quality graphics on this pay-per-view. So King of the Ring 98 drew 310,000 pay-per-view buys, which has to be considered a success when stacked up against King of the Ring 1997, which only garnered 177,000 buys. Oh, what a difference a year makes. (laughs) Also a substantial increase from last month's Over the Edge pay-per-view, which only put up 211,000 buys. Now, when compared to the competition, WCW's Great American Bash pay-per-view, which aired two weeks prior, actually put up 290,000 buys. That's only 20,000 below King of the Ring. So truly, June 98 was a very competitive month on pay-per-view for the two big wrestling feds, even though the WWF has won in the ratings every week this month. And now, let's get into the show. Yes. I was actually quite pleased to see our opening video package was narrated by Classy Freddie Blassie, who ends up doing quite a few of these over the years. Interestingly, Blassie refers to The Undertaker as the Black Angel, which is a nickname I don't recall Taker ever having, and probably for good reason. Yeah. I did appreciate during this opening video that they that the background music was like a remixed version of Mankind's theme song. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Did you like when Blassie said, May God have mercy on our souls? <laughs> of course. That, that classic go-to line, and it's anytime something bad is about to happen, <laughs> may God have mercy on their souls. So we queue up the pyro and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Not too many noteworthy signs, but I did notice two fans holding up the exact same sign, only two rows apart from each other, the classic sign mocking WCW by claiming that their abbreviation stands for We Can't Wrestle. Certainly, Attitude Era fans got a lot of mileage out of that one. Yes. Also... One fan near the entrance could clearly be seen holding up a sign which just said, fuck you. So (laughs) kudos to that guy for getting that past security. Did did you happen to notice any good signs? Uh, Not during the opening. I have one that came up later, but uh, we'll get to that when we get to that. Okay, fair enough. So we open with Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler recapping the card, and sitting right next to each of them is a gas can. Lawler amusingly says that the Austin versus Kane main event is a win-win because, quote, Either we get a new WWF champion, or we're going to see a guy get set on fire. It's great either way. <laughs> so for the record, Jerry Lawler is totally fine with a man burning himself to death <laughs> right in front of him as though he were a Buddhist monk. Good to know. That's good to know. Did anyone purchase this pay-per-view actually thinking Kane was going to set himself on fire? I, 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 that's what I purchased it for, obviously. <laughs> I, 
I mean, I certainly wouldn't have thought going in that uh, that Kane would win the title, but uh, I guess we'll see how that how that ends up playing out. Spoiler alert. Mm. So our opening match is a special unannounced bonus six-man tag team match. Oh, WWF. Yeah. yeah, it's very special. WWF light heavyweight champion Taka Michinoku and the Headbangers versus Kai and Tai members Funaki, Togo, and Teo, accompanied by Yamaguchi-san. Taka is actually wearing the Headbangers signature t-shirt and a skirt as well, so that was a nice touch. Although strangely, Togo on the other side is wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt, so it would seem he would be right at home teaming with the Headbangers as well. I don't know, he wasn't wearing a skirt. That's true, that is true, and that's pretty crucial. I would say this was kind of a, an uneventful match, but it did give us one noteworthy spot where Taka did the classic face-in-peril spot of crawling toward his corner, but he then jumped in the air and tagged both members of the Headbangers at the <laughs> same time, yeah. causing Mosh and Thrasher to come in the ring together and confuse the crap out of referee Jack Doan as to who should be the legal man. I'm going to say not just Jack Doan. I'm going to see confuse the crap out of everyone. Yeah, pretty much. I don't think I've ever actually seen that before, the hot tag to two people at once. So truly, Taka, uh, definitely an innovator here. They say anything can happen in the WWF. That's right. And shortly thereafter, Taka was actually tagged back into the match anyway, and he hit Funaki with the Michinoku driver, and that was enough to pick up the three count. So Adam, what were your thoughts on this King of the Ring opener? I, uh, I I had completely forgotten that this match had even happened. <laughs> um, I had completely forgotten the image of Takamichi Noku wearing a skirt. Um, but yeah, it was. I mean, Me it was it was a fine match, like you said. Nothing nothing monumental, nothing earth shattering happened here. So it was what it was. Indeed, and and I would say the one strange thing about this is the fact that both the Headbangers and Funaki were still on the WWE roster up to very, very recently. I don't, know the, <laughs> I don't know if the Headbangers are still signed to SmackDown or however the hell that works, but they definitely made some appearances. I don't think so. so kind would of strange. You, is, would you say Funaki's really signed to the roster? He's just, a, he's just a commentator at this point. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, he's still, he's still involved with the company, I guess. I guess, I guess so. I, I guess bet so. he could still go. He could still go. <laughs> So up next, Indeed. Sable. <laughs> oh, I missed that. Up next, Sable headed to the ring, and a cameraman immediately found a fan holding up a Sable 469 sign and zoomed right <laughs> in on it, while another cameraman found a Sable 24769 sign. So does Kevin. Does Kevin <laughs> that Dunn doesn't realize, even make sense. <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, does Kevin Dunn actually realize these signs are not actually flattering to the future <laughs> Mrs. Lesnar? Like, oh, Sable 69, yeah. Anyway, just kind of strange. Jim Ross then gets in a creepy line when he says, and I quote, I'm not saying she's gorgeous, but I know a lot of my buddies in Oklahoma that'd marry her dog to be a part of her family. Wow. <laughs> All right. You know, you know, JR, something tells me your Oklahoma buddies may want to marry their dogs regardless of whether or not you <laughs> make them Sable's in-laws. But that's just a hunch. So bizarre. I don't know if you heard Lawler's reaction too, but Lawler basically, I think his reaction to that was just, What? <laughs> very appropriate yeah very appropriate. that was my reaction too so once again sable's role tonight is to introduce us to vince mcmahon who walks uh. to the ring alongside pat patterson and gerald briscoe who i believe we've actually not seen since last month's over the edge pay-per-view where the undertaker chokeslammed both of them through announce tables mm -hmm. now adam in case you need a refresher the storyline right now is that Sable lost a retirement match to Mark Merrow, but Vince hired her back, and she has since been given some sort of position with Titan Sports. Yeah. And I remind you of this because I had completely forgotten this was ever <laughs> a thing, and I don't think it ever ends up going anywhere, but yeah. we'll see. This was, the, this was the first sign that I made note of during the show while, while Sable came out. Uh, the two that you mentioned, and then the third one that said, Sable can't wrestle, but I'd like to see your box. 
Oh, oh, I didn't even see that. Oh, my God. That's a fantastic sign. How did I miss that? Oh, man. So Briscoe I enjoyed, escorts, I enjoyed uh, this sorry. segment, if only because Sable was only in the ring for about two minutes. Pretty much, yeah. The less I have to see and hear of her, the better. Agreed. So Briscoe escorts Sable out of the ring to booze from the crowd. However, as Sable bends over to exit the ring, Patterson, of all people, pat, <laughs> pats her on the ass, and you can file that one under not fooling anybody. Yeah. Sable then proceeds to slap Patterson in the face as Jim Ross says that Pat was getting a little liberal in territory he's not familiar with. Pat then responds by saying, and I quote, I dare having a woman slap me. Get out of here. <laughs> well, English isn't the man's first language. You know, I guess it was, you gotta give him a pass. It was a good slap. I'll give her that. Oh, it was, that was yeah. a solid, it was a solid slap. I was wondering like the night after, like they said, Patterson, Patterson wasn't on raw. I was wondering like, did he get concussed <laughs> by, that, by that slap? Cause he got fucking nailed. Apparently it was like a, a death in his family or something, but, but that was pretty vicious. So Vince then cuts a pretty uneventful promo saying that the fans who want to see Kane set on fire are going to be disappointed, which they should be used to because their entire lives have been disappointments and so on. So Adam, did you enjoy this segment? That promo really cut no purpose. It had no purpose other than to shit on Pittsburgh. Pretty much. That was the only reason that happened. It didn't further any kind of story. We already knew that Kane was going to set himself on fire if he lost because they already showed us the videos. So he really only came out there to tell these people how awful they were. Yes, exactly. I was also retroactively surprised that they didn't announce the first blood slash setting on fire storyline until literally the raw before this show. <laughs> like they didn't they didn't build it up for weeks and weeks. It was just like six days before they're like, Oh, here you go, this is what the stipulation yeah. is. So kind of strange. Do you think Vince was still dying his hair at this point? Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. For certain. Our next match is a King of the Ring tournament semifinal match. Ken Shamrock versus Jeff Jarrett, accompanied to the ring by greatest character ever, Tennessee Lee. But once again, (laughs) Southern justice is nowhere to be found. So I have to ask, what is the point of debuting some bodyguards for Double J when they're never actually around to guard him? Very strange. So as Jarrett was walking to the ring, we got some more questionable signage as the cameraman zoomed in on one sign which said, Double J, ain't he gay? And even more surprisingly, Jerry Lawler, Actually, acknowledge the sign on air. <laughs> he is great. He's an idiot too. Did you see that sign over there? It said Double J eighty days. He wasn't in any of those parades out in California today. He's here in Pittsburgh. So, for the record, Lawler is actually correct. San Francisco held their Pride Parade on that very day in 1998. So, kudos to the King for knowing that. I guess. As- <laughs> As for the match, it only went about five and a half minutes, but I thought it was pretty enjoyable. The finish came when Jarrett whipped Shamrock off the ropes, and Shamrock then jumped up and caught him with a vicious-looking Frankensteiner. He then rolled Jarrett over into the ankle lock, and Double J immediately tapped out. Tennessee Lee then ran into the ring and took a swing at Shamrock, but Ken ducked and hit him with a belly-to-belly suplex, which I feel was uncalled for. Shamrock now advances to the finals of the King of the Ring tournament, where he will meet the winner of the Rock-Dan Severn match a bit later. So, Adam, your thoughts on Ken Shamrock versus Double J? Uh, going into the show, I actually wrote this in my notes here. I had forgotten who won the King of the Ring in 1998, so I was looking oh. forward to being surprised all over again. And then it turned out to be who it was, and that was kind of disappointing. But <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Shamrock's finisher is one of those, it's like when The Miz inherited the figure four from Ric Flair. Oh, he, yeah. do, he does absolutely no work on the legs whatsoever. Right, right. 
and then locks on the ankle lock and they tap immediately. Yeah, immediately. I feel like that was maybe just to, to give legitimacy to uh, to Shamrock coming in because like, oh, he's a UFC guy. So if he put you in an ankle lock, you would tap immediately. There wouldn't right. even like there's no drama to it. Like with a sharpshooter where you're like, oh, they might tap, you know, they, they kind of prolong it a little bit. Right. But no, with, with the ankle lock, it's like instant tap out, even if it's barely locked in. Right. Yeah, Shamrock, uh, you know, well, I, I guess we'll see who ends up winning the tournament. But uh, I was personally a little upset that uh, Tennessee Lee had to take a bump there. I'm very, very upset about that. And again, yeah. Southern Justice, I, I do surprisingly actually remember Southern Justice as a team, but I don't remember them being off TV for so long after their debut. <laughs> they literally debuted a month, I think a, a month prior to this. They were on one show, and they've been completely absent ever since. So I, I don't even know what the point of having them as Jarrett's valets even is. Quality. But, Indeed. So our next match was that aforementioned Rock-Dan Severn matchup. WWF Intercontinental Champion The Rock versus Dan the Beast Severn. And I have to note that even though The Rock is still clearly a heel, he gets a very nice size pop when his music hits. The fans used to fucking hate him, but Rock is slowly starting to win them over by virtue of being so entertaining. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, only Mark Henry and the Godfather accompany Rock to the ring. D'Lo Brown is presumably still injured, but Owen Hart was just completely MIA. Not that it matters anyway, because a bunch of referees forced Mark Henry and the Godfather to go backstage before the match starts anyway. So, kind of irrelevant. Severn is actually rocking the Stone Cold Steve Austin look tonight. Black tights, black knee pads, black boots, and I'm surprised no one told him to switch up his style. But then again, I certainly wouldn't want to be the person to tell him that he needs to change. <laughs> so early he on did, in the match... Oh, he yeah, did sorry, as... Uh, as he was coming to the ring, he really did look like he hated everything. Yes. Yeah, and the fans don't really care for Severn too much, which is kind of funny, but uh, I'll get into that in just a little bit. So early on in the match, we get an interesting moment where Severn appears to legitimately hurt Rock for a moment as he goes for a single-leg Boston Crab, but Severn accidentally steps on the back of the Rock's knee when he does so, causing Rocky to scream in pain. We then get a close-up of Rock's displeased face as he angrily mutters, God damn it! So I guess he's not really enjoying Severn's ring style too much. As the match progresses, it becomes clear the fans are overwhelmingly siding with The Rock, something I actually have not seen during this podcast until now. And I find this interesting because you might think the fans would want to see the all-UFC Shamrock versus Severn King of the Ring final, but no, they prefer The Rock, and I can't say I blame them. Yeah, I don't think I don't think anyone wanted No matter how much Jerry Lawler said that that's what they wanted, I don't think anybody wanted that. No. And the finish of the match came when Rock and Severn collided in the middle of the ring, and both men fell to the canvas. Mark Henry and the Godfather then ran back down to ringside, so clearly no one backstage was monitoring them, and this distracted Mike Kyoto. While Kyoto's back was turned, well, I'll just go ahead and play the clip for you. And uh, wait just a minute, there's D-Lo Brown, look at this, what's he got? D-Lo Brown up on top, and smash! Yeah. D-Lo Brown wearing some sort of... But he just nails Dan Severn with that frog splash and may have busted Severn up and the frog gets the deuce. That's right, D'Lo Brown has returned from the torn pectoral muscle he suffered at the hands of Dan Severn and he is now wearing what appears to be a loaded chest protector. <laughs> His beautiful-looking frog splash helps The Rock get the win and advance to the finals of the King of the Ring tournament against Ken Shamrock, and I will encourage you to go back and listen to that clip again because you can hear that Rock clearly gets a very nice-sized pop when he wins. It appears that the fans are starting to come around to his side. Also, here's a fun fact. 
Adam, would you like to know the last time Dan Severn lost a clean wrestling match prior to this one? Sure. How about November 30th, 1994? Jesus. Almost four years he hadn't lost a clean wrestling match. That match was actually in a Japanese company called Union of Wrestling Forces International, and he lost by TKO to some dude named Kiyoshi Tamura. So there's that. But anyway, Adam, what were your thoughts on this Rock Severn match and D'Lo Brown's chest protector? I was very excited that it was the debut of the chest protector. I, the I, debut? I fucking loved that gimmick, and I loved how how long they played that out. The match itself was not much. I mean, like I said before, I don't think anybody was expecting Dan Severn to go to the finals of the King of the Ring, so it was kind of a, just a means to an end at that point. I'm a big fan of Dio's chest protector, too. I think that's a case of taking a guy who up to this point was kind of marginalized in the nation. He basically didn't do anything, but just by giving him that, that silly little gimmick of the chest protector, it just takes his character to a whole other level and really right. kind, of, kind, of, kind of gets him over that much more. Yeah, uh, definitely. We'll see that in the coming weeks, obviously. But yes, we have a... Rock versus Shamrock rematch coming up for the King of the Ring Championship. Did, when you saw that was the matchup, did you remember who who won? I didn't. Honestly, I thought I. I mean, I remember that that the Rock had never been King of the Ring, but it still was like they're really going to put Shamrock over. Yeah, maybe maybe in your head you were thinking, I don't recall Ken Shamrock ever wearing the robe and the crown <laughs> and the scepter because <laughs> we didn't get that. We didn't get the traditional King of the Ring. Yeah, there was uh, no cor- there was no coronation. Not at all. There was a dumb match the next night on Raw. We'll talk about that later. But Yes. Oh, yes, indeed. With a, with a very interesting uh, name to it as well. But we'll get indeed. into that. So our next match is Al Snow and Head taking on the team of Too Much. That would be Too Hot Scott Taylor and Too Sexy Brian Christopher. With the stipulation being that Al will get a meeting with Vince McMahon if he wins. But if he loses, he's gone from the WWF, a company which in storyline he is not a part of. Makes sense. <laughs> So Alan Head entered to no entrance music, which surprised me at first because I was expecting that what does everybody want theme, but I suppose it makes sense you wouldn't have that yet. Before the match begins, Howard Finkel informs us there's actually a special guest referee, Jerry the King Lawler. So first of all, this went on for eight and a half minutes, which is far too long for a goofy comedy match where the fans don't care about the tag team involved. Although I will note that Scott Taylor busted out the moonwalk, which provided a nice glimpse into his future gimmick. The match ended when Al Snow made the hot tag to Head. Yes, you heard that correctly. And he started cleaning house. I mean, Al, I mean, not, not Head. Head wasn't cleaning house. So Al hit Scotty with the snowplow. But meanwhile, Brian Christopher grabbed Head and put it on top of a bottle of Head and Shoulders shampoo. Har, har. Christopher then covered Head at the same time that Al was covering Scotty, and Lawler made the three count. Al thought Lawler was counting for him, but he was, of course, counting for his own son instead. Your winners of the match, too much, which means that Al Snow is gone from the WWF, just like Sable was one month ago, and he will not get his meeting with Vince McMahon. Also, it probably doesn't bode well for your WWF career when you lose your first match to too much. But anyway, Adam, what did you think of this one? <laughs> uh, I completely agree with you in that it went on far too long. I I did appreciate Jerry Lawler wearing the crown while refereeing, but did we ever find right. out? Did we ever find out why he used to commentate in wrestling gear? I don't think we did. No, hmm. never really made much Weird. sense. He, yeah, he was and, just like he was ready to go with the drop of a hat, basically yeah. anytime, anytime some, was needed. Something, something tells me, something tells me that that Lawler came up with the head and shoulders gimmick by himself. Yeah, yeah I, I would I would agree with that too. That screams like a Jerry Lawler pun. 
head. And then, and then and Brian she, Christopher screamed it about three times on the way out of the ring. Yeah, to really drive the point home in case we yeah. didn't get it. Yep. So I guess I guess technically head does not have shoulders, but putting it on a bottle was enables the shoulders to be pinned to the mat somehow, I guess. Because I, I guess it's head and shoulders, so the bottle is the shoulders. Apparently so. <sighs> that would hold up in a court of law, no doubt. <laughs> so our next match was an unannounced bonus match, yet another one, but this was one I actually popped for. Yeah, this one was actually good. Yeah. Nation of Domination co-leader Owen Hart versus X-Pac, who was accompanied by China. As soon as I saw this match on the card, I was actually reminded of the fact that these two guys fought at the King of the Ring four years prior in 1994 in a match which Owen won before eventually being crowned that year's king. In case you've never seen it, it's a very short match, but I recommend you check it out solely for the opening spot where Owen is in the ring and X-Pac, or at that time the 123 Kid, is standing outside of the ring. So the lights in the arena are dim because around this time they would turn them off when the kid entered so they could project the numbers 1, 2, 3 on the canvas. Well, because of that, the kid doesn't see Owen running at him, and Owen absolutely levels him in the face with an incredibly <laughs> stiff dropkick, which knocks the kid right to the ground. So definitely go check that out because I, it's I, fucking brutal. I'm going to have to go back and watch that. Yes, absolutely. Owen Hart versus 1, 2, 3 Kid from King of the Ring 94. But as for the current match, the storyline is that Owen attacked X-Pac two weeks ago on Raw and dropped him dick-first onto the steel barricade, so Pac got his revenge one week later by nailing Owen in the back of the head with a chair shot, which legitimately busted him open and resulted in Owen having to get seven staples in his head. Apparently, these guys just enjoy stiffing the ever-loving shit out of each other. So funny enough, in what was likely a callback to that very same 1994 match, X-Pac opens the match by drop-kicking Owen from the ring to the floor, but it was actually very safe-looking, so no liberties taken there. The match was pretty good, but it ended up being slightly marred by the ridiculously overbooked finish. So while both men were on the top rope, Owen appeared to attempt a superplex, but instead X-Pac fell onto the ropes, then down to the floor, but Owen sold it as though X-Pac pushed him off the turnbuckle, and he landed back first on the canvas. It was really bizarre looking. So with the referee's back turned, Mark Henry then ran out from backstage and splashed X-Pac on the floor. However, Vader then ran out from backstage behind him, and he then proceeded to hit Henry with a running avalanche, but unfortunately when he <laughs> hit him, Vader then tripped and fell on his ass. Oh, he, classic. He literally had to hit only one move. And he ended up botching it. Boy, oh boy, it has not been a good couple months for Vader. <laughs> so the referee was then distracted by Vader and Henry brawling, so he missed the fact that Owen had X-Pac in the sharpshooter back in the ring, and Pac was tapping up. That allowed China to sneak into the ring and hit Owen with a DDT. The ref then recovered and counted to three, giving X-Pac his first win on WWF television since he defeated Hakushi on the February 5th, 1996 episode of Raw. Now, I would be totally fine with China hitting a DDT on Owen and having X-Pac pin him, except for one minor detail. China hit Owen with the DDT, the ref made his way back into the ring, and then X-Pac did the slow crawl over to Owen to pin him, which meant that it took 26 seconds between the DDT and the pinfall, and that's just a long-ass time to sell a single non-Jake Roberts DDT, if you ask me. But Adam, what did you think of this, uh, this particular match? Maybe China's the new master of the DDT. You don't know that. Maybe. Going back to going back to X Pac's X Pac's entrance. What what did they think the lyric was in his theme song that they only ever censored it in the in the WWF Attitude video game? It no, literally about... the word "fuck" is in his theme song. There you go. But they ne they only ever censored it in the video game. 
the match itself was decent. Like I said, so I really, I did really enjoy Vader running into Mark Henry and then falling over. Yeah, um, that, that was just sad. But there was just something oddly prescient about uh, about Jerry Lawler asking, "What if they fall from there?" When Owen and X Pac were up top going for that oh, superplexed spot. Yeah. Ooh, fast forward one year from now. I was talking about the Hell in a Cell match, but okay. You to, you, you oh, to, oh, sorry. You had to take it in that direction. I, that's what I thought you meant. <laughs> my my apologies to Martha Hart. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a pretty solid match, though. Owen versus Xbox. Two two really solid workers. I, I enjoyed it. Definitely, I think it was the best unannounced bonus match of the night uh, out of three. So, oh, absolutely. Definitely. Damning with faint praise, I suppose. <laughs> so our next segment was Paul Bearer coming to the ring so he could tell the world that he is, in fact, in attendance tonight, even though The Undertaker assaulted him at his home last week. And right off the bat, we get a little bit of confusion regarding Kane's backstory. So last week on Raw, Vince McMahon proclaimed that Kane would use a voice box and speak for the first time in 20 years. But then during this promo, Paul Bearer says that Kane used to watch The Undertaker on TV and tell Bearer that he wanted to be like him. And Taker didn't debut in the WWF until 1990, so that means Kane was definitely speaking much more recently than 20 years ago. So get your shit straight here, WWF. <laughs> come up, come up with a convincing story. And maybe, one other, maybe oh, he sorry, was watching. Maybe he was watching Mean Mark Callis. Oh right, there you go. That was a great gimmick. <laughs> one other noteworthy aspect of this promo is that there is an infamous fan heckle that happens during this segment, which the WWE Network thankfully leaves completely intact. <laughs> So Bear is telling the world how Kane used to idolize Taker, and one angry Pittsburgher takes the opportunity to respond to one of Bearer's rhetorical questions. But he would say, Daddy, I want to be like him. How do you think it makes me feel? Tonight! Kind of funny that a fan calls Bearer a big fat piece of shit <laughs> only one month only one month after Vader used that exact same phrase to describe himself. Must be a new catchphrase. So anyway, Bearer also, says that tonight just oh, on, yeah, a, on a side on a side note, mm, Pittsburghers. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Pittsburghers are delicious. Uh, so Bearer says tonight will be the happiest night of his life because he will be the father of the new WWF champion. I guess we shall see. So, Adam, what were your thoughts on this Paul Bearer promo? It was what it was. I mean, it was nothing too fancy. Like you said, it was basically just him saying that he was there. My question was, after this, there was, an at least in the WWE Network feed, there was an odd cut. Was there like a commercial or something? Was that, Did they cut out like a Super Soaker ad or something right after Paul Bearer's segment here? Maybe, it was a yeah. strange edit there. I know around this time they were advertising, there was like a, a DX vhs <laughs> so it was I actually i owned it because it was strangely one of the few wwf videos i guess where they would actually show boobs so go back and look that one up it was the the dx uh the dx video basically summing up i think it was basically just summing up the early years with with uh what's his name drew a complete blank there Shawn michaels couldn't remember Shawn michaels name <laughs> jesus christ he was just on raw this week i know well, last I week watch raw this week but I know he's in the resurrection of Gavin Stone in the theaters right now, <laughs> uh, playing an ex-con apparently. But yeah, so that that DVD or that that VHS at the time was recapping the early days of DX with Shawn Michaels, Triple H, and China, and it actually did show boobs. So go back and and look that up if you wanna if you wanna take a look. So basically, I'm saying it may have been an ad for that VHS. That's my guess, but I don't know for sure. I'll have to do my research. So next up, we had. Another bonus match, and it was for the WWF Tag Team Titles. Champions, the New Age Outlaws, accompanied by China, versus Challengers, the New Midnight Express, accompanied by Jim Cornette. 
At this point, the crowd is fully beginning to sing along with the Road Dogs opening spiel, and that is something which will certainly happen quite often during the Attitude Era. Also, for the record, the New Midnight Express are still the NWA Tag Team Champions, but no one really cares about those belts because they haven't been defended on TV in several months. I also couldn't help but marvel at the fact that Bart Gunn was a complete afterthought during this pay-per-view, but man oh man, is that going to change pretty (laughs) soon. More on that in the coming weeks. Do you think think they asked Bart to grow his hair out like Bob Holly and he said no? (laughs) I hope so. What you mean to say is bombastic Bob and bodacious Bart, obviously. (laughs) Which, which I, I sincerely enjoy that not even the the commentators can keep straight which one is fucking which. Yeah, exactly. Because who gives a shit? Exactly. 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 Also, why did Billy Gunn and Bart Gunn get to stay brothers, but Edge and Christian became best friends? Right. <laughs> it's a fair point. That is a fair point. <laughs> yeah, this, this match was surprisingly given almost 10 minutes of ring time, and yeah, not all that great. Although, I guess if you want to see two brothers, Billy and Bart, go head to head, you got that going for you. So the finish of the match although, came with Billy... Although we, we did get Bob Holly's potty mouth. Oh, what did he say? I completely missed it. At one point during the match, he yelled. I don't remember. I don't know if it was at Road Dog or Billy Gunn, but he yelled, Suck it! Fuck you! Oh, holy shit. I completely missed that. And yet, knowing Bob Holly, that does not surprise me at all. <laughs> He's a surly individual. Indeed. Suck it! Uh-oh! So the finish of the you match know, came when Billy rolled shithead. up... Yeah, that's right. That's coming up. What is that, WrestleMania 2000 when he says that to yeah, Michael to Cole? Yeah, Michael Cole. I will break your ass in half, you little shithead. Great. Quality. Best promo he's ever cut. <laughs> <laughs> so Billy rolled up Bombastic Bob, but Jim Cornette rolled into the ring with one of the tag belts in an attempt to smack Billy with it. However, Billy saw it coming and stared down Cornette, which was supposed to be China's cue. Unfortunately, the ninth wonder of the world was on the wrong side of the ring, so Cornette had to stand there with the tag belt for 18 seconds <laughs> while China, China literally ran around the ring to get to him. It was actually a pretty amusing sight. I will say, though, the crowd did pop huge when she delivered a ball shot to Cornette from behind. Yeah. The Outlaws then delivered a tandem stun gun onto Bombastic Bob, dropping him throat first onto the top rope, which was enough for Billy Gunn to pick up the victory as Road Dog crotch chopped along with the referee's count. Your winners and still WWF Tag Team Champions, the New Age Outlaws. Adam, what were your thoughts on this match, and did you notice China missing her cue? I, I didn't. I noticed that, that Cornette was standing there for an awkwardly long time, but I didn't see her running around like a madman. Yes. Um. Again, it was an all right match. You know, nothing, nothing too special, like you said. There was, these these bonus matches are not really that great tonight. But not at all. It was all right. I mean, there was, obviously there was no chance that the fucking new Midnight Express were going to win the WWF Tag Team Champions at the right. championships at that point. I would certainly hope not. The New Age Outlaws. So they they've basically I think been champions since like November ish, aside from WrestleMania 14 where they lost the belts for one day to Cactus Jack and Chainsaw <laughs> Charlie, but pretty much been consecutive for yeah about uh, eight, seven, seven or eight months now. So kudos to them for that. And another awkward cut after the match on the network version. Probably Bye. advertising another wonderful uh, VHS stacker two. Oh yeah. <laughs> I also do you remember the one with the, with um, there was an ad for Stridex with Triple H where it was basically like him acting kind of tough. It was like Stridex for pimples and blah blah blah, and then Triple H they cut to him being like, so you can focus on more important things or something like that. It's it <laughs> like why is Triple H advertising Stridex? I I don't. <laughs> Anywho. It you is should, now time. Should find oh, that sorry. on YouTube. Should find that on YouTube and put the link in the description of this episode. If we there you go. And now 
It's time for the finals of the King of the Ring Tournament. WWF Intercontinental Champion The Rock versus Ken Shamrock. Before either man can enter, however, Stridex spokesperson Triple H <laughs> and China and China come to the ring. And I have to wonder why China even bothered going backstage since she was just at ringside <laughs> for the Outlaws match. So China will actually be joining the Spanish commentators for this match, which will again cause me to mention the fact that we have literally heard China speak English on one occasion since the start of this podcast, but this will now be the second time that we hear her speak Spanish. Kind of a strange trait for her character to have, but fun fact, China actually majored in Spanish literature while attending the University of Tampa, so maybe she just wanted to show off her skills, I guess. Maybe. Triple H on commentary. I sure hope he doesn't say anything weird. Oh, yeah. I was just about to touch on that. (laughs) So Triple H is joining Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler on commentary, and that results in one of the greatest sound bites of all time. So when they show China with the Spanish commentators, JR mentions the fact that she can speak more than one language, and Hunter says that he cannot. And, well, I'll just let him tell it. I was hoping you would put the clip in. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> You're not bilingual? Huh? You're not bilingual? There's a lot of bi things I am, but lingual is not one of them. Hey, wait a minute. Did I just mean to say that? I don't think you did, but be that as it may, we're live. Boy, those three seconds of silence sure do feel like an eternity <laughs> there, don't they? <laughs> Still one of my all-time favorite sound bites. So thank you, Triple H, for bringing so much joy into my life, I suppose. What, what exactly was he going... I still have no idea what he was going for there. <laughs> no clue. Like, what, what did he... What, what was he talking about? I don't understand. Because he obviously wasn't trying to, to make a joke about himself being bisexual, I assume, but... Maybe? I, I don't know. No idea. Maybe not, he's thinking... Not a clue. Maybe he's thinking a bi-coastal? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so a quick reminder of the Rock-Shamrock feud. So Shamrock actually beat The Rock for the Intercontinental title on two separate occasions, once at the Royal Rumble and once at WrestleMania 14, but both of those decisions ended up being overturned, so The Rock retained the title. You may also recall that infamous moment when Shamrock got down on his knees and begged The Rock to hit him with a chair, and Rock responded by absolutely murdering him (laughs) with an unprotected chair shot to the face. Insane spot. Go back and watch it. And funny enough, you know when they go back and do the uh, the JVC kaboom box, that sort of thing, like the kaboom of the week? Yeah. So in the background of that, where they're like, where they're advertising the kaboom of the week and showing various kabooms in the background, one of them is the Rock murdering Shamrock with that chair shot. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's just kind of funny the the difference now, where it was like today you wouldn't even be allowed to do that, but back then it's like we're going to put that in all our advertisements for JVC. Just bam, killing Shamrock. So early on in the match, the Rock ducked out of the ring and got in Triple H's face, with Hunter amusingly referring to him as Fuzzy Top. Triple H then spit water in Rock's face, so Rock shoved him to the ground before referee Mike Chioda intervened and separated them. Hunter then put his headset back on and continued his commentary, thankfully not saying anything else truly stupid. Although I am going to play one other clip from Triple H here, because you may think it sounds a bit ironic in retrospect. That's what separates champions from losers in the WWF. Not how much stroke you got with the guy running the show. Not how much you can stick your nose up somebody's butt. That's running the show. It's about who's got it in that ring. So continuing on, the crowd seemed to be firmly in Shamrock's corner for this match, but The Rock actually did get a very nice-sized pop when he hit the people's elbow, so he's definitely shifting the tide ever so slightly. The finish of the match came when Shamrock went for a Frankensteiner, but Rock reversed it and dropped him throat-first onto the top rope. 
Rock only got a two-count from it, and he then spent the next few seconds arguing with Mike Kyoto. And then, when Rock went back over to pick up Shamrock, Kenny put him in a leg grapevine and transitioned it into the ankle lock. Rock then tapped cleanly, giving the victory to Ken Shamrock and making him your 1998 King of the Ring. Adam, what were your thoughts on this match, and what do you remember about the reign of King <laughs> Shamrock? <laughs> As I said earlier, absolutely nothing. I um, agree. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely, uh, I'm sure in 1998 it was a surprise uh, that, that they put Shamrock over. Yeah, I mean, not the way that I would have gone with it, especially with where The Rock was in his career at that point. But uh, sure, King Shamrock, why the fuck not? Yeah. Maybe they thought, well, we already have the, we already gave The Rock the Intercontinental title, so he doesn't need the King of the Ring, too. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I thought for sure that this, again, not remembering how this match ended, I thought for sure the fact that Triple H was on commentary and got in The Rock's face during the match, I thought he was going to interfere and cost The Rock the match. But no, he just lost it completely cleanly, just tapped cleanly. So, I don't know, did you, did you think that was the way it was going to go, or did you just think, like, yeah, he'll, he'll probably lose on his own? I don't know. I, not, not having watched uh, these in... Order as you have, I was uh, honestly a little confused as to why Rock was out there in the first place. But then they started making the jokes, and I remembered the uh, the, uh, the the impersonation segment from from before. I assume that's where that was before this. Nope, actually, that is that's next coming week. Up. Oh, gee, okay, that's well, next week. Actually, look forward to that on the next episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's some fun uh, blackface. <laughs> just wonderful. For some reason, the WWF will still, sh or WWE, I should say, will still show clips of that, even though it's like, uh, X-Pac in like super duper blackface. I don't know. Don't know if that's the best. But anyway, it is now time for the Hell in a Cell match. The Undertaker versus Mankind. So before we begin here, I just want to state, this is only the second ever Hell in a Cell match on pay-per-view. It's not like today's WWE, where the recent Hell in a Cell pay-per-view literally had three separate Cell matches in one night. At this time, Hell in a Cell was a very special attraction, and that is all thanks to The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels, who had an absolutely classic Cell match eight months prior at the Bad Blood pay-per-view. And seriously, if you haven't seen that match, definitely make a point to go back and watch it, because it's amazing! But the moral of the story here is this. The Undertaker and Mankind had some big shoes to fill mm. heading into King of the Ring 1998 because that match was so goddamn good. Right. In fact, on that note, Adam, if you will indulge me for a moment, do you mind if I read a passage from Mick Foley's 1999 autobiography, Have a Nice Day, A Tale of Blood and Sweat Socks? Sure. Perfect. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin with a passage where Mick describes his feelings after Vince Russo gives him a phone call and tells him he's going to be facing The Undertaker inside Hell in a Cell. I was overjoyed, but minutes after hanging up, I was plagued with feelings of certain failure in the cell. I'm screwed, I thought. I suck inside a cage. Undertaker has a broken foot. That's in reference to the legitimate injury Taker suffered when he ransacked Paul Bearer's home on Raw last week. No one cares about me. And besides, was the world really calling out for a sixth Mankind Undertaker pay-per-view encounter? At that point, I had no idea it would be the most talked-about match of my career. Mick then goes on to describe how he and Terry Funk got together and watched The Undertaker Shawn Michaels Hell in a Cell match from Bad Blood, so I'm just going to pick up the next passage there. Cactus? Terry mumbled. That one's going to be difficult to beat. I know, I agreed. Plus, I'm a hundred pounds heavier than Shawn. I just can't do some of the things in that cage that he can. Once again, we sat in silence for a couple of minutes. I was the one to break the silence. What do you think I should do? I asked my mentor, friend, and hero. His answer would both make me professionally, and damn near break me physically. I think you ought to start the match on top of the cage. 
You'd think I would know better than to listen to Terry Funk. We continued to talk on the way to the show, but it was mostly joking around. God damn, Cack, the Funker said, laughing. Maybe you should let him throw you off the top of the cage. Yeah, I shot back. Then I could climb back up and he could throw me off again. Man, that was a good one, and we were having a good time thinking of completely ludicrous things to do inside, outside, and on top of the cage. After a while, I got serious and said quietly to Terry, I think I can do it. And with that being said, let's get into the match. So I have to say, right off the bat, when they started lowering the cage and the old-school creepy Mankind theme music started playing, I got goosebumps knowing what was coming. That was a really effective theme song, I must say. So Foley walked to the ring carrying a steel chair, which he then tossed on top of the cage, and be sure to remember that detail for later. (laughs) Sure enough, he then began climbing the cell, having just a bit of difficulty doing so. In fact, in that very same autobiography, he mentions that he lost all feeling in his right index finger for a whole week, based on how hard he was straining just to climb up the metal fencing of the cage. So once he successfully made it to the top, the lights went out, and The Undertaker's music played. Taker slowly walked to the ring and stared up at Foley. After taking a moment to unbutton his coat, he also began climbing up the side of the cell, all too eager to join mankind on top of the cage. Foley met him at the top with some punches before he could fully climb up, but eventually the Undertaker dazed Foley with a few right hands, which allowed him to join mankind on top of the cell. Foley then proceeded to level him with two chair shots to the back, and he then picked Taker up and walked him closer to the edge of the cage. At this point, I forgot about one particular detail. So when the Undertaker and Mankind were walking on top of the cell, one of the panels actually gave way below them and caved in slightly, almost resulting in both of them falling to the ring below. But it provided just enough support that they didn't fall through. Totally forgot that part happened. Yeah, we can we can blame Austin and Kane for weakening the top of the cell from last week's Raw, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That was a pretty cool moment, too, with, with Austin, like, stomping across the cage to go after Kane. Yeah. That, that must have been what weekend it was, those yeah, Austin absolutely. stomps. 100%. Yeah. He's a very hard stomper. He is. He'll stomp a mud hole in you. And walk it dry. And walk it dry, exactly. So Foley then appeared to go for his patented double-arm DDT, but The Undertaker ducked out of it and dazed Mankind with a few punches. And, well, I'm going to let Jim Ross pick it up from here. What's going to happen here? Undertaker fighting back. He's fighting back. They're out of balance, folks. And I don't like it a damn bit. Oh, my God. Look at oh, That's right, just as he said he would do, Mick Foley was thrown off the top of the Hell in a Cell, a 16-foot fall, through the wooden Spanish announce table, onto the concrete below. Mm -hmm. An absolutely insane spot, which still gets replayed today, and for good reason. Adam, we'll discuss the rest of the match in just a bit, but in terms of just this spot, would you say it's probably the most dangerous one ever attempted in the WWE? Uh, I know that's a lot of them. Yeah, maybe not the most dangerous, certainly the most iconic. Absolutely the most iconic. I had forgotten how early in the match it happened. Yes, very early. Yeah, so I was uh, <laughs> I was watching this. I was watching this back, and I was like, "All right, we're on top. All right, he's got the chair. Oh shit, he's off the top already." Yep, that was it. Was literally ninety seconds into the match. Yeah, yeah. but no, yeah. absolutely, and, uh, absolutely the most iconic, and certainly not just of this rivalry, but I think of the Hell in a Cell match. Any time you think of Hell in a Cell, 
you think of mankind falling to his death. Absolutely. Either that or The Undertaker hanging the big boss man. Those are the two. <laughs> Those are the big two. But yeah, and also kudos to the cameraman because they got really good angles, not only from that one from the floor where you see mankind kind of being tossed into the frame, but also from uh, the zoomed out angle where you see them both on the top of the cage and Taker throws him. Yeah, and given uh, I, and given the fact that as far as as far as I remember from reports that the only two people who knew that they were doing that, or I guess three if you count Terry Funk, was the Undertaker and Mankind. Yeah, exactly. They were they were the the camera guys were spot on there picking that up. Yeah, in Foley's book, he actually goes he says that uh, he was kind of pestering Taker to do that spot. Like Taker was kind of like, I don't know, I don't think I, I we should do this or you should do this. But eventually, I think it was like, he might have said like the day of or shortly before the match, Taker like actually agreed to do the spot because he basically didn't want to to kill Mick Foley. Yeah. So, but Foley talked him into it. So there you go. So yeah, that was 90 seconds into the match. 90 friggin' seconds. And amazingly, they were just getting started. So a little more than a minute after Mankind went off the cage, several referees, WWF physician Francois Petit and Terry Funk arrived on the scene. It is a comical name, I must say. It really is. He's a petite man. So they all arrived on the scene to tend to McFoley. Shortly thereafter, a legitimately concerned Vince McMahon also came to the ring to check on him, which was a bit of a departure from the Mr. McMahon character, who had most recently been portrayed as using Foley as a pawn in Vince's feud with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Some EMTs then wheeled a stretcher to ringside, which resulted in the fun visual of the cell having to be raised toward the ceiling while The Undertaker was still standing on top of it. A fact, that, a fact that Lawler was very quick to point out. Yeah. The cameras then showed Vince's concerned face while one angry fan took him to task by yelling, You got ratings now, McMahon! <laughs> so, so let it be known that at least one guy in the crowd was appalled by that instead of reveling in the carnage. But then, however, we got a loud chant of Undertaker as though the fans were applauding the storyline brutality the Taker showed in almost murdering mankind. So Foley was then put on the gurney and wheeled up the aisle as EMTs and WWF personnel surrounded him. And on that note, let's quickly go back to Mick Foley's autobiography. Actually, I felt surprisingly all right as I lay there among the wreckage. My shoulder was hurting as it had become dislocated from the fall, and I felt a dull pain in my kidney area. Other than that, I felt okay. I actually had a feeling of inner peace about me as I was tended to by officials, Terry, and even Vince. At least, I mistakenly thought as I enjoyed the attention, the worst is over. <laughs> I was about as wrong in that assessment as a human being can possibly be. Yeah. So amazingly, less than six minutes after being thrown off the top of the cell, Mick Foley stood up from the stretcher, shrugged off several officials, and climbed back up the fucking cage. This actually seemed to take The Undertaker by surprise, as he himself had already climbed back down at this point, but sure enough, he followed Mick right back up to the top. So Taker grabbed the steel chair and walked toward Mick, laying the chair down on one of the panels, and then, well, take a listen. The Undertaker grabbed Mankind by the throat and chokeslammed him onto the steel chair, but Mick Foley's weight caused the panel to collapse, sending Mick through the cell and onto the ring canvas below. And I will say, for all the credit Jim Ross deservedly gets for his commentary during this match, Jerry Lawler's off-the-cuff line where he says, That's it, he's dead. 
always sticks with me because you get the feeling the king may have actually believed it at the time. <laughs> and I can't say I blame him. So once again, I'm going to go back to Mick Foley's autobiography here. The Undertaker grabbed me around the neck for the choke slam. I didn't remember a thing about the next two minutes as I watched the tape in great pain the next day. It was the only time in 15 years that I had been knocked out cold. I had been knocked goofy countless times. I'd seen stars and rainbows and black patches as a way of life for a long time. But this was the first time that a period of time elapsed and I wasn't aware of it. Looking back on it now, it was both the worst choke slam and the best choke slam I'd ever taken. The worst because it was the only time in my association with The Undertaker that I haven't gone high for the goozle. As a matter of fact, one of my feet never left the cage. The best because if I'd taken it correctly, I very well might have been dead. As it was, I landed hard on my back, my neck, and the back of my head. If I'd gone higher, I would have landed directly on my head and probably wouldn't be here, at least not in control of my limbs. It was indeed a violent, brutal fall, made worse by the fact that I landed in one of the old Federation rings, which have little give. To make matters worse, the chair that was placed on the cage followed my body down and smashed into my face from a height of twelve and a half feet. The blow to my face would result in one and a half teeth being knocked out, a dislocated jaw, and a hole beneath my lip that I could stick my tongue through. Owie. So once Mick landed on the mat, by the way, I was saying owie. That wasn't part of the, the biography. So by God, he's smiling. Mat, yeah, that's right. And yes, once Mick landed on the mat, Terry Funk and the same officials who had been tending to Foley previously ran into the ring to check on him once again. The Undertaker then climbed down through the newly opened hole in the roof and dropped down to the canvas, noticeably wincing when he landed on his injured ankle. Yeah, I had always thought that this is when it gotten hurt. I didn't realize it was the, the whole Paul Bearer thing from the week before. Yeah. Because yeah, I remember, yeah. I remember. And spoiler alert, I remember that the, the reason that the, the title switch happened twice in 24 hours was because The Undertaker was, was injured, but I, had, I didn't realize it was from that. I thought it was from the Hell in a Cell match itself. I did too at the time. I thought he tweaked it when he had initially jumped down. Yeah. But apparently when he was beating the shit out of Paul Bearer at his house, he kind of uh, turned his ankle because he did actually fall over at one point. It, when I was watching the segment, I saw Taker fall over and kind of like land on the couch. And I was like, huh, that looked kind of weird. I don't know why they didn't <laughs> edit that out. But yeah, apparently that was when he did it. So gotcha. not very careful. So Terry Funk, much to his credit, tried to buy Mick some time by getting in the Undertaker's face so Taker delivered a choke slam to him as well. Amusingly, oh. after taking the move, yeah, greatest choke slam after ever. After taking the move, oh, it's fantastic. And after taking the move, Funk flopped around on the ground, which caused his shoes to fall off and remain inside the <laughs> ring, even after Taker tossed him out of it. And actually, in his book, Mick also comments on regaining his consciousness <laughs> and being even more confused when he sees a random pair of sneakers <laughs> sitting on the canvas in front of him. So was it was it, Ross oh, sorry, or, was it Ross or Lawler who, t who who made the call that Undertaker had choke slammed him out of his shoes? I think that was uh, I think a, it was Jr. It's so great. It's so fantastic. Yeah, very nice ad lib by Terry Funk there. Yeah. Oh basically well. Yeah. Like, yeah. You got to be being like, my friend is dead. I need to buy him. You got to buy time. You got to figure. You got to do it somehow. Absolutely. So Mankind then got back to his feet and Taker hit him with one punch, which Mick basically sold as though he was a tree slowly being <laughs> chopped down. I mean, you could tell at this point he's still completely out of it. So Taker then grabbed Mick's arm and went for old school, or at this point, I guess it would just be school. school. <laughs> yeah. But Mick knocked Taker off the top rope to the ring apron. Foley then slumped into the corner, and it was at this point we got one of the more famous visuals of the Attitude Era. In fact, once again, I'll go back to Foley's book, and he can tell it to us. 
With the Undertaker temporarily incapacitated, the camera zoomed in on me to discover two rather odd findings. One, I appeared to be smiling, and two, there was something white sticking out of my nose. Actually, I wasn't smiling, but was trying to let the camera get a look at me, sticking my tongue through the hole under my lip. Unfortunately, with all the blood and facial hair in the way, the audience didn't get to share that special moment. As far as the white thing sticking out of my nose, it was not, as first thought, a piece of table or even a white booger. It was actually half of a tooth. How it got there has been the subject of a great deal of speculation. The tooth almost seemed like the magic bullet in the JFK assassination. (laughs) Did it go through the mouth and out the sinus cavity as some felt, or was it more likely to have just moved the two inches from mouth to nose, as I have come to believe? So, Adam, can you think of a more noteworthy picture from the Attitude Era than Mick Foley's tooth lodged in his nose? The only other thing, the only other thing that comes to my mind is is Steve Austin in the Sharpshooter at WrestleMania 13. Yes, absolutely. Um, but those two, I think, are the iconic moments of of the Attitude Era. I would agree. For and sure. re- you reading these excerpts reminds me why that that book was the first book I ever read from start to finish unintentionally, and <laughs> and overnight at one point. Nice. I started reading it probably about probably about seven o'clock at night, and then the next morning, my dad came out to the living room to go to work, and was like, "What the fuck are you doing? Still up?" And I was like, "I was reading a book." I love it the the unintentional all night book reading. Yeah, it's a great book. Uh, All of his all of his books are great. So, yeah, very surprising too, because you wouldn't think wrestlers would be, you know, the 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 best wordsmiths, I guess you could say. But yeah, that's a fantastic book. In our timeline, I think it comes out about a year from where we are now. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's obviously available <laughs> in the present day. You can you can still get that book. But yeah, fantastic. Have a nice day. A tale of blood and sweat socks, I believe, is the full title. Yep. So definitely pick that shit up. His second book is great too. That I can, I can't remember what it's called now. I think that one was called Foley is Good. That yeah, that's the one. Yep. So continuing on in the match, it was also at this point that WWF officials decided to. Lock the cage shut, because once again, clearly, Mick Foley is in no immediate need of medical attention. (laughs) Just lock him right the fuck in there. So Foley knocked Taker off the apron to the floor, and then he attempted to pick up the ring steps, but his dangling left arm was not able to hold them, and they fell to the floor. I'm not sure if that was a sell job or legitimate, but Mick ended up paying for it because Taker then picked up the steps and rammed Foley's arm with them three times because he clearly hadn't taken enough punishment yet. You gotta try to knock that shoulder back into socket. That's, that's a good point. He's trying to do him a favor. So with Foley standing against the cage to prop himself up, Taker then impressively went for a suicide dive, but Mick moved out of the way, causing Taker to go headfirst into the cage. This resulted in an impressive-looking Undertaker blade job, and Mick then proceeded to pounce on that opportunity by dragging Taker's bloody forehead along the mesh. Both men then returned to the ring, where Mick hit Taker with his patented wedgie pile driver on top of the same steel chair, which almost killed Foley a few minutes prior. <laughs> but he only got a two count from it. Mick then put the chair on Taker's face and hit him with a leg drop, but that only resulted in a two count as well. After hitting Taker with a double arm DDT, Foley then rolled to the floor and reached under the ring to pull out a bag. He put his hand inside of it, grabbed a fistful of some sorts of objects, sprinkled them on the canvas, and then the camera zoomed in to show us that it was thumbtacks. Because why? Because at this point, why not? Yeah, seriously, why not? For those of you scoring at home, this was the first time fans had seen thumbtacks in a WWF ring, and you can hear the crowd start to gasp when they realize what's going on. Very cool to hear. So Foley then delivered several punches to Taker as he teetered closer toward the tacks. Foley ran off the ropes, but Taker caught him and picked him up to go for a tombstone, but Foley escaped and put him in the mandible claw. 
Taker began to fade and dropped down to his knees as Foley then sat on top of him almost in a camel clutch position. Referee Tim White picked up Taker's arm to see if he was still conscious. His arm dropped once, then twice, but on the third attempt, Taker shot his arm up. He reached both arms around and grabbed Mick's legs, hoisting him on top of his own back in a piggyback position. Taker then slowly backed toward the pile of thumbtacks and propelled himself backward, causing Foley to land back first onto the tacks. Ever the consummate professional, instead of rolling away from the pile, Mick then proceeded to roll toward it, covering himself <laughs> in even more of the tags. You gotta make it look Tim good. Wh- yeah. Tim White went over to check on Foley, and you could loudly hear Mick say to White, tell him to goozle me, but I'll, I'll look the other way on that since he almost killed himself for our amusement <laughs> in this match. And sure enough, after White goes over to The Undertaker, Taker does indeed goozle Foley, and then he hits him with a choke slam right back into the thumbtacks. Once Mick gets back up with even more thumbtacks in his body, Taker then picks him up, delivers a tombstone, and, mercifully, he pins Mankind for the one, two, three. Your winner, after 17 minutes of incredible carnage, is The Undertaker, and I will splice in Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler's calls of the ending for you as well. EMTs, WWF officials, Terry Funk, and Sergeant Slaughter helped put Foley on top of a stretcher. However, as Mick recounts in his book, he then asked referee Mike Chioda if he had already been on a stretcher that night, and when Chioda said that he had, Foley insisted he get up and walk to the dressing room because he didn't want to be on a stretcher twice in one night. Sure enough, with the help of Funk and Slaughter, Mick did indeed walk to the backstage area as the crowd gave him a standing ovation and chanted Foley. Pretty cool stuff. Plus, it would, wrap it, up, it would probably hurt to get wheeled out lying on your back after being chokeslammed on a thumbtacks. That's, that's a very fair point, actually. And so to wrap it up, I will read one final passage from Foley's autobiography. Several days after the match, I asked The Undertaker if I had spoken to him afterward. He laughed as he recalled our discussion. Did I use thumbtacks out there? Is apparently what I had come out with. He looked at me, still covered with the damn things, <laughs> and, said, and said, Yes, you did, Jack. Yes, you did. Oh, good, I reportedly said, and walked away. So with all that being said, Adam, what are your thoughts on The Undertaker versus Mankind inside Hell in a Cell? Uh, first, I feel like we should at least credit Mick Foley as a contributor on this episode, given how much of your book he's re- uh, how much of his book you're reading. Um, Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to do the book on tape for him going <laughs> there forward. There you go. And I also think you should at least tag him in, um, in the Twitter post when you, when, you, when you talk about the episode. I, w- yeah. I should do that, yeah. An absolutely iconic match. The, I don't think anything will ever top this in the fans' minds when you think about Mankind, when you think about Mick Foley, or, or possibly even when you think about The Undertaker, but at least when you think about that feud. This was the epitome of Hell in a Cell. This was the be-all, end-all. The, the, those two guys went out there and 
literally literally tried to kill themselves in the name of entertainment. So Absolutely. I think, yeah, this match, just based on the first two Hell in a Cell matches alone, the Taker versus Shawn Michaels and then and then this one, has given the Hell in a Cell legitimacy even to this day. Because you can go back and look at either of those matches. They can show clips from them and just be like, holy shit, these Cell matches are fucking intense. Right. Uh, obviously, you know, they're not as bloody these days as they were back then. But, I mean, th- these matches basically gave the Hell in a Cell that legitimacy of being like, whoa, this match is, you know, a match where people get it and they fuck each other up. Right. And in terms of the match, any of those three spots Foley did, whether it was being thrown off the top of the cage, through the cage, or being thrown onto the thumbtacks, any of those spots would have been perfectly okay. Just just using one of them in a match would be fine. And you could say, okay, wow, Foley took a lot of punishment. But the fact that he did all three of those things in the same goddamn match is insane. You have to wonder what the plan was to get back down from the cage, given that they weren't supposed to go through the roof. Right, yeah. I'm also wondering, by the way, who fixed the cage when it gets lowered a little bit later, because the, you know know what I mean? Like, the panel isn't still hanging down in the the main event, but whatever. But yeah, I I just can't believe, um, basically, that Foley would look on this in advance and say, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll go off the cell. I'll go, I'll get chokeslammed on top of the cell. I'll get the thumbtacks. Like, just doing all of those things in one match is just fucking bonkers, and it's why Mick Foley is a goddamn legend, yeah. and also probably the reason why he uh, can't walk right to this yeah. so and spits his teeth out, and, and spits his teeth out on Monday Night Raw. Yeah. Oh God, did did that happen recently? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, when he was yelling at Sami Zayn uh, three or oh, four weeks ago. Oh Jesus, that that actually happened. I completely missed. That. Yeah, he was in the middle of a promo and his teeth fell out. Did he have to then, like, act like nothing was going on, or did he uh, just acknowledge it? Sammy kind of covered for him, so. Okay. Because I know there was a spot on, on Raw in 1998 where uh, Foley's teeth came out and Austin stomped on him. <laughs> or maybe that was an over the edge. It might have been over the edge. That was amusing. But, yeah, basically Mick Foley, fucking legend, and this match is uh, pretty much the reason why he's yeah. such a goddamn wedge. Among other things, I mean, he's certainly t- taken a lot – more punishment throughout his career than just this match. But this is the epitome of the Mick Foley mindset of being like, holy shit, this guy will do anything yep. to get the fans to notice him. So kudos to you, Mick Foley, for that. Yeah, and it, and, and it worked uh, out better with the whole with the whole lip thing anyways, that it wasn't like, oh, he's sticking his tongue through a hole because then you got, that again, that amazing JR call of, he's smiling! Right, exactly. And I don't know if they zoomed in on him like just to show... The, the smile, and then incidentally, they're like, oh shit, there's a fucking tooth in his nose. Like that. <laughs> so, so much of that is iconic. Yeah, the image of him going off the cell, the image of the tooth in his nose, yeah. all of it is just so, so goddamn ridiculous. So, hats off to Mick Foley, and I hope he isn't going about uh, ruining his legacy by being the GM on <laughs> Monday Night Raw these days, but I, I haven't been watching much Raw in the present day, so. I, I choose to remember him by the cell match, is what I'm saying, Maybe. not as the GM of Raw. <laughs> And so it might actually be hard to believe, but there is still one more match on this card. WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Kane in a first blood match with the stipulation being that Kane will set himself on fire if he does not win the title. I won't go as in-depth on this match as the previous one, but I'll definitely let you know the basics. Why would you? So for start, of course, that, that previous match needed a lot, needed the in-depth treatment. But what I will say... For starters, Kane is wearing in this match a full body suit and a glove on his right hand. So literally, the only flesh he is exposing is his left hand in this match. Probably a wise strategy. Unless, of course, he gets a paper cut in which he gets <laughs> fucked. But I'll also note, 
Despite the fact the crowd had just witnessed one of the damnedest matches in WWF history, it still did not dampen their enthusiasm for Stone Cold because there were still loud Austin chants and he got his usual massive pop. Interestingly, Austin came to the ring with a shitload of padding on his right elbow, which may seem strange because that was not part of a storyline, but here's a quick excerpt from the June 29th, 1998 edition of the Wrestling Observer. Austin was hospitalized on Friday night after the house show in Houston due to a staph infection in his right elbow, which resulted in a high fever, said to peak at 104 degrees, and he was hooked up to an IV unit and remained hospitalized at least through Monday. It was unclear exactly where the infection came from, but it was believed to have stemmed from a bad elbow bruise that may have taken place at the television tapings earlier in the week in either San Antonio or Austin, Texas. Austin had contracted a mild fever by Wednesday. He was scheduled to return in Houston and did work the main event on the sold-out show at the Compact Center beating Mankind, although was said to be in great pain backstage and had to be taken to the hospital after the show. So there you have it. All of that goofy-looking elbow padding is, in fact, a shoot. And apparently don't, it didn't impact him too much. Don't tell CM Punk. Yeah. And apparently it didn't impact him too much because the very first move he landed on Kane to start the match was his trademark Luthez press, complete with punches to the face. Perhaps he was inspired by Mick Foley toughing it out after almost killing himself a few minutes prior. Austin then hit Kane in the face with the WWF title on two separate occasions, but Kane did his patented Jason Voorhees sit-up routine for both. Not too often you see two belt shots get completely no-sold. A couple minutes later, both men brawled to the outside, and, for some reason, the Hell in a Cell cage began to lower from the ceiling. They both got back inside the ring before the cage hit the ground, so apparently we have our second Hell in a Cell match of the <laughs> evening. Amusingly, at some point, it appears that Austin somehow received a bloody cut on his back, but Earl Hebner did not stop the match because, well, that would probably be rather anticlimactic. Although, truthfully, if Earl had gone into business for himself and given Kane the title due to a minor cut... It wouldn't have been a huge shocker. Let's just say he's been involved in a more controversial decision than that one. <laughs> did you notice that? Did, did you notice the bloody cut on Austin's back? I, d I didn't. I didn't notice it this time. I do remember though from the original, uh, from watching it the first time. Like, hey, he's already bleeding. Yep. I I feel like Earl should have just rung the fucking bell. I mean, if Kane was going to so. win anyways, exactly. Save the Undertaker from walking out there on his bum ankle. That's right, and save Austin a blade job. Yeah. So we then got a bit of a goofy spot as Austin knocked Kane down onto the doorway of the cell, and then the cage then began lifting toward the ceiling again, so Kane was basically hanging by his stomach in midair while trying to go after Stone Cold. It looked a wee bit silly. A little bit. Both men then began brawling up the aisleway, and we then got a random shot of Vince McMahon sitting in a luxury box with Sable by his side. Sitting, and truthfully, sitting in literally the worst seat in the house. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I feel like Vince could get a better view than that. He was he was way back there. I mean, like, dude, you own the company. Just watch from backstage. However, this does provide Vince with an alibi, and with Paul Bearer standing at ringside, we can rule out either of them as the person who is raising the cell, and I don't know if that ever gets revealed, but I think we can make a guess as to who it is. This is the same person who did the briefcase. That's right, yeah. Uh, one year from now at the very same pay-per-view. <laughs> So Kane took control with a backdrop onto the concrete, a suplex onto the ramp, and he actually threw a steel barricade right at Austin, which had to have hurt. Eventually, Stone Cold headed back to the ring, and Kane followed him. They brawled around the ring a little bit more, which resulted in an amusing spot where Austin took a fan, not a person from the crowd, but an actual fan seated on the announce table, and smacked Kane right in the head with it. It looked pretty funny, but it also appeared to be stiff as hell. <laughs> 
Shortly after that fan shot, Kane grabbed Austin by the throat and threw him backwards where he collided with Earl Hebner, knocking him to the floor and leaving us without a referee. How's that for a classic Vince Russo spot, a ref bump during a match in which there are no disqualifications? Yeah. Very, very necessary. In a moment I had completely forgotten about, who should do a run-in during the match but none other than... Mankind. I mean, really, they still had Foley go back out there when he was all fucked up and injured only 20 <laughs> minutes after his match ended? That's quite the interesting decision. He brings a chair to the ring with him, but Austin quickly dispatches him with a stunner. Kane then grabbed Austin by the neck, but Stone Cold hit him with a low blow to escape, and then Kane received a stunner as well. The Undertaker then briskly walked to the ring, holding a chair of his own, as Austin picked up the other chair for himself. Taker swung the chair at Mankind, but Foley ducked, causing Taker to smack Austin's chair into his own face. Sure enough, this resulted in Stone Cold getting busted wide open. The Undertaker then picked up Earl Hebner and rolled him back into the ring, and he then grabbed one of the gas cans and poured it on top of Earl to revive him. <laughs> Kinda strange. Well, but... However, while he was doing that, Kane snuck up on Taker and leveled him from behind with a chair. Austin then clotheslined Kane and took the chair from him, and he proceeded to brutally level Kane in the head with the chair. At that point, however, Hebner had fully recovered and noticed that Austin was a bloody mess, so he called for the bell to be rung. Howard Finkel announced Kane as the new World Wrestling Federation champion, but surprisingly, we do not get to see Kane holding the title. Instead, we cut to a shot of Vince McMahon grinning from ear to ear as he talks to Sable, and for some reason... That is how we go off the air. So, Adam, what were your thoughts on the first blood match and on King of the Ring as a whole? I wanted to see Kane get set on fire. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> you could have watched the Inferno match two months prior. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the first blood match itself, that gimmick really doesn't lend itself to much, I feel. Because there's so you because you got to play it safe throughout the whole match to make sure, unlike what happened here, that nobody bleeds until they're supposed to. But I, I mean, I thought the match was decent. Yeah, the bit with the with the cell going up and down was a little strange. And yeah, Kane playing gymnast on the on the frame of the door was a, was a bit odd. Yeah. But um, the match itself was decent. I mean, the run-ins from the Undertaker and Mankind were weird, and and I feel kind of unnecessary, especially given what happened the next night because the Undertaker wouldn't be able to face wouldn't be able to feud with Kane over the title anyways. Right. That was the weird thing too is that um, so. They play it up as though Taker was swinging at Mankind, and he accidentally hits Austin. But then the next night on Raw, which we'll get to in a little bit, Taker basically says, I did what I had to do, which made it seem like he intentionally right. hit Austin with the chair. Right. So it's, it's kind of a strange yeah, angle. He did, he did what he had to do to prevent his brother, who he's been feuding with and fighting with and really doesn't like all that much, from setting right. himself on fire. Exactly. Mm, well, I don't know. As for the pay per view as a whole, I think it is as obvious by what happened while I was watching, largely forgettable, except for that one part that's not. <laughs> but you're talking about Ken Shamrock winning. Oh, the of course, absolutely, of course, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a moment that will live it in for me forever. Um, Obviously, yeah. There, there's nothing much to to the 1998 King of the Ring beyond the Hell in a Cell match. Nothing really stands out other than that, especially given what happens the next night on Raw where Kane's title reign is basically erased anyways. Uh, spoil Spoilers. Spoiler alert. But it's not it's not one that you would go back to watch for any other reason. Probably not. Although I did, I did like the uh, concept of Kane winning the title because I remember at this time I thought there was 
no way Kane was going to win the title because it just didn't seem like they would put the belt on. I don't know why it just seemed like they wouldn't go with him. And obviously it turns out they don't, they don't really end up going with him very far, <laughs> but even, even though the, the stipulation was Kane was going to set himself on fire, I thought for sure Austin was going to win, but they would somehow weasel out of it. Right. And, you know, Kane, like the undertaker would stop Kane from setting himself on fire or something like that. But um, as a historical curiosity, Kane winning the title in 1998, pretty, you know, pretty cool because, you know, it's, it's kind of funny seeing big red monster Kane holding the WWF title. It just doesn't look right. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely a surprise and, and going into, going into Monday night raw, the whole, the whole ceremony in the ring with the red carpet and the display case and the brand new belt with a nice blue strap and everything like that going on to the big red monster Kane. Is yeah. is a, a a very strange sight to see Vince McMahon lauding Kane as the new WWE champion or WWF champion is is it is it doesn't really it doesn't really play that well. Yeah, so there you go, King of the Ring. Overall, you're saying you're saying pretty much thumbs in the middle. Uh, I'm saying ex- probably except for except for the Hell in a Cell, I'm gonna say thumbs slightly down. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Well, on that note, are you ready for Monday Night Raw? Yes. Am I still Excellent. am I still the thorn in your eye? Yeah, yes you okay. are. That's the only part of that song I can understand. <laughs> Even to hey, this day. Rock and roll is like fighting in the ring. We get together yeah. to do our thing. We all play long, we all play hard. No, sorry, we all play hard, we all play long. That's why they got together to sing that song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well I listened to the I listened to the said, shit out of some full metal when I was a kid. Oh, I did too. Absolutely. I think uh, Goldust's initial theme, I, I put that on a loop because it was just so fucking <laughs> awesome. It's not the same theme he uses to this day, by the way. The, the one he uses in present day is very similar, but yeah. it's not the same one. Yeah. So the, the initial one was much better. But anyway, it is now Monday, June 29th, 1998, and we are live from the Gund Arena in Cleveland, Ohio, which is in the present day called the Quicken Loans Arena and is home to LeBron James and the reigning NBA world champion Cleveland Cavaliers. You can, Some other You can tell this oh, sorry, you no. can tell this is a special episode given that we're an hour into it and we are just getting to raw. Absolutely. <laughs> we're going deep. So some other noteworthy WWF slash WWE events which have been held in this same arena include SummerSlam nineteen ninety six, where Shawn Michaels threw a hissy fit on Vader. <laughs> TLC 2014, where dumb shit Dean Ambrose blew himself up <laughs> on the television monitor, and an event which gave us so much hope in 2001, only for the WWF to squander it, a little old pay-per-view called Invasion. <sighs> so we open, yeah, oh, good yeah. times. We open with a recap of last night's main event, including a really cool black and white shot of Austin's angry, bloody face as Howard Finkel announced Kane as the new WWF champion. What will Stone Cold have in store for us tonight? Let's find out. So cue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Adam, I don't know if you noticed any noteworthy signs here either, but some of the ones which stood out for me were Who's Bischoff Blowing and WCW Fucking Sucks. <laughs> Once again, nice job sneaking that F-bomb by security. Did you notice any of them? I, I didn't catch any, no. I don't have any notes. I didn't get any, any signs during Raw this week. Fair enough. There, there are a few more coming up, actually. I'll delve into those a little bit later. Beautiful. Now, Adam, you may not have realized this, but this episode of Raw marks the beginning 
of the Jim Ross-Jerry Lawler Monday Night Raw era. And what I mean by that is previously Michael Cole would be on commentary with JR for the first hour of the show, and then the King would join for hour number two. But this was the first night where Lawler joined JR for the entire two hours. So clearly, you picked the right episode to guest host. (laughs) Yeah, I do remember that from the last time that I hosted, that, uh, that they made that switch. Yep. Yeah, they were still doing that up to the week prior. So as long as it wasn't Kevin Kelly, we're good. Oh yeah, well, well we do, we get a little bit of Kevin Kelly in this episode, but, but not on commentary, so that's all right. No, no, he's no. much better now in Ring of Honor than he ever was in WWF in the nineties. I don't doubt it. So we begin with Vince McMahon heading to the ring, accompanied by Gerald Briscoe and Sergeant Slaughter, but not Pat Patterson, who Jim Ross informs us has suffered a loss in his family. And I'm a bit glad that Pat isn't there because the very first chant we hear from the Cleveland crowd is, well, did you hear what they were chanting, Adam? I did not make a note of it. They chanted, Vince is gay. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first, what, and why? What, what, what basis are they chanting, Vince is gay? I, I don't know. If, whatever. You're, mar- so- you're married and you have two kids. You're so fucking gay. Yeah. Thanks a lot, 1998. Thanks for that. <laughs> So when all three, all three men make it to ringside, we see there's a red carpet inside the ring, and the WWF title is sitting inside of a glass case. Vince grabs a mic and says, Oh, what a happy day. He says that a giant breath of fresh air has now come to cleanse us all because Stone Cold Steve Austin is no longer the WWF champion. Vince says that unlike Steve Austin, your new champion is someone who has never so much as tasted an alcoholic beverage. Now, full admission here. I was going to disprove that no-alcohol statement by playing a clip of Kane talking about how he killed Katie Vick when he was driving drunk, <laughs> but, but then I went back and researched that angle, and it turns out he actually killed her due to the combination of not being able to drive a stick shift and an unnamed animal jumping out into the road, and yes, that is the actual story Kane told in his Aww. promo, so feel free to go look that one up. Damn it. Was, was not drunk driving. I'm not I'm not going to because I, I choose not to relive the Katie Vick angle in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. I wonder if that but episode so, but of Raw for, But for is, some reason, I'm disappointed. Yeah. Is that episode of Raw where Kane has sex with the corpse, is that actually on the network? I really wonder if it is or if they just scrubbed it entirely. We'll find out in the future That's episode right. of the Raw Attitude Podcast. Well, that, I think that one's in 2002 after the oh, Attitude yeah. Era, so maybe. Gonna, have to start, gonna have to start a new podcast. There you go. The Katie Vick Podcast. Yeah. Tune Katie. in next week on the KVP. Katie cast. So anyway, Vince then goes on to say that Kane does not utter any profanities, and the only hand gesture he makes is to salute the American flag, which actually seems like it would be wildly out of character for him at this juncture. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe present-day Kane, but not this Kane. And also, he makes plenty of hand gestures. He does that thing where he sets the turnbuckles on fire. He does right. the thing where he calls for the choke slam. He does the thing where he does the throat slash. Exactly. Yeah. He threatens to murder his opponents during every match. Absolutely. I think that's worse than a middle finger. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree with you on that one, actually. (laughs) It's much worse. So Vince then says, I give you the World Wrestling Federation champion. I give you Kane. And kudos to Mr. McMahon for that over-the-top announcement, by the way. Yeah. Because he seems to drag out the word Kane to about five syllables. One of the most iconic announcements Kane has ever had. Oh, yeah, easily. Maybe when he got drafted to ECW and uh, whoever that was, Todd Grisham went just yelled out, Kane! <laughs> was it Todd Grisham? I don't even remember. I don't remember. It was, it was one of those guys. Or Josh Matthews. Maybe it was Josh Matthews. Feel free to go look that one up. <laughs> so once Kane and Paul Bearer enter the ring, some asshole fan throws an Al Snow mannequin head into the ring, which Kane then has to kick out of the way. <laughs> Awkward. 
For the second night in a row, Paul Barry begins talking about how Kane idolized The Undertaker as a child, and also for the second night in a row, at almost the exact same moment, a fan loudly heckles Barry <laughs> with naughty language. You might not be able to hear this if you're listening through computer speakers, but if you have headphones on, take a listen and see if you can pick up what the fan says. He would say, Dad, I want to be like him. So Barry then goes on to say that now, for the first time, the Undertaker is standing in the shadow of his little brother. Gerald Briscoe then lifts the glass case, and Vince prepares to put the WWF title around Kane's waist. But Stone Cold Steve Austin's music hits. <gasps> Indeed. The ex-WWF champion comes to the ring and grabs a mic, and he reminds Vince that the stipulation of last night's match was that the winner would be the man who drew first blood on his opponent. However, Kane did not bust Austin open. It was The Undertaker who did it, and as a result of those shady circumstances, he wants a rematch with Kane tonight on Raw. The crowd then begins chanting rematch as Vince says that Austin does not deserve one, but he'll let him have the rematch if Paul Bearer says it's okay. Bearer then proceeds to cower behind Kane as Austin mocks him for being fat, but Bearer then eventually does say it's alright with him if it's alright with Kane. Austin then proceeds to belittle Kane by saying that his bigger brother actually won him the title last night and he knows he couldn't beat him fair and square. An angry Kane then knocks over the podium, and when Austin asks if he'll grant him the rematch tonight, Kane nods his head yes. Austin then heads backstage as Vince flips out, apparently not thinking that Kane would actually agree to the title rematch. Adam, your thoughts on this opening segment? Yeah, it's. I, I feel like it's obvious that they were scrambling. Um, yeah, I feel like it's. I feel like that may have actually started the scrambling. May have started the night before when they realized that Taker was hurt and couldn't couldn't do what they want. Where they were planning on going with the story and so the whole the whole situation just felt a little a little thrown together which is par for the course these days we're we're, we're aware but uh at that point it was uh yeah you had a match last night and that's uh we need to get the title off of you because obviously kane's not going to be the WWF champion so uh just fight uh fight steve again why not yeah so you're saying you think that the plan was definitely for taker to take the title from him that's everything that I had heard back back then was that the plan was uh, to have a, a Taker a Taker Kane feud for the title that Taker would end up leaving with the championship and then because of the ankle injury that he couldn't do it so interesting okay so w w the plan was for Taker to beat him the next night or for... I don't know if it was the next night I think they just had to scramble and be like well Taker's not going to be available to take the title off him so fuck it put it back on Austin gotcha gotcha. I thought this segment was really bizarre because in terms of the scrambled nature of it, it seemed so out of character for Vince McMahon to just be like, well, yeah, you can have the rematch if it's okay with Paul Bearer. And then Paul Bearer just passed the buck be like, oh, it's okay if, if Kane says so. It's like you're just basically giving your arch nemesis another shot at the title one night yeah. later. Like yeah. if, if Vince hates Austin that much, he should be like, no, you're not getting the, you're not getting yeah. the fucking rematch. Yeah. And I, I'm just glad that Kane didn't have the voice box because I always thought that that was the dumbest fucking thing. Yeah. Well, he does end up using it later. Yeah. So it's okay. If Kane says it's okay, you're on. Yeah. Oh, that would have been nice too. Like, I guess just <laughs> the nodding was more effective, but yeah, putting the, the stupid voice box. Oh man. Yeah. So that, there you have it tonight on raw, your main event will be a rematch. WWF champion Kane versus stone cold, Steve Austin. Good stuff. We then segue into our first match of the evening. Darren Drozdov versus Sable? No, apparently Sable is just out to read another prepared statement from Vince McMahon. 
Also, we had some more noteworthy signs here when Sable en- when Sable entered the ring, including she's got herpes <laughs> and three separate fans holding up individual signs which said Poontang, Beaver, and Muff. These Cleveland fans, <laughs> these Cleveland fans are masters think, of subtlety. I think I listened to the guy, those guys on morning radio. This is that's yeah. the, zoo, that's the, the Cleveland Zoo crew, right? Yep, Poontang, Beaver, and Muff on Y100. <laughs> so anyway, Sable announces that Mr. McMahon has signed a new superstar to the WWF roster, and that superstar is Steven Regal. That's right, Steven. He had not been renamed William just yet. Now, this surprised me because I thought Regal had actually debuted in the WWF under that real man's man gimmick. Yeah. So it was quite a shock to me that he was actually sporting a look similar to the, what he had to what he had in WCW, where he kind of had that aristocratic looking yeah. coat over the red ring tights. So, yeah. yeah. But by far the least regal theme song that I think uh, that he's ever had. Incl- I'm including real man's man in that. That was the most un unregal theme song I think I've ever heard for him. I was I was actually making a note of that because I went back to find the original clip of this raw broadcast just to see if that terrible generic theme was actually the same one he had that night or if they went back and overdubbed it. Yeah. And as it turns out, that actually was the theme they used for him <laughs> on that very night. Steven Regal! Well, Sable doing Mr. McMahon's bidding for him, and here comes Steven Regal, a man with tremendous international reputation that is going to try his hand here in the WWF. This is Regal's debut. So it doesn't fit at all. It's, you expect, especially these days with, with William Regal, and you expect that kind of aristocratic, that kind of kind of high class, maybe some brass in there. And this was just this is just g- generic rock song. Kind of. Yeah, not great, not great. Made no goddamn sense. Do you prefer the man's man theme, or do you prefer the one he ends up using, where it's just kind of like boom, 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 or whatever the fuck it was? I I do have a special place in my heart for the for the real man's man theme song. My favorite is is actually the one that that came before his current one, the one that's like the kind of the brass. Oh yeah, that's right. That's my. I think that's my favorite William Regal theme song of all. I totally forgot about that one. That that was really good. Yeah, that was when he was being, I guess, when they were projecting him as, well, actually quite quite regal. I guess you could say that was that theme song as opposed to like the more recent one he used, which is basically kind of like this guy is a fucking arch villain, basically. This guy is Darth Vader. There we go. Which he still uses even as the general manager of NXT. Yeah, that's right. Also, by the way, uh, side note, no, he's he's not in the Hall of Fame yet, right? Not yet. I was actually just thinking that. There have been reports that he may be included this year, and I am 100% for William Regal being in the Hall of Fame. Absolutely. The guy's got, at this point, his career span probably, like, what, 25 years at least? Yeah, and given everything that he's done for the company at this point as as a scout, as a trainer at the Performance Center, you know, being on camera still as the general manager of NXT, I, I think he's absolutely deserving of a spot in the Hall of Fame. 100%. Come on, WWE, get on that shit. Come on. Yes. And so, Adam, in case you need a quick refresher, Regal had been fired from WCW back in February 4, depending on who you believe, either substance abuse issues or his match with Bill Goldberg, where he put Goldberg through a competitive five-minute match <laughs> instead of being instead of being completely squashed by him in less than a minute. I love that story. Custom. Yeah. Yeah, being squashed in less than a minute was the custom for Goldberg's matches at the time, and apparently in the present day still is. Yeah. Yeah. And now, here he is in the WWF taking on Draws. 
Once the match begins, Sable walks over to Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler on commentary. Ever the gentleman, JR oh. stands up when Sable approaches, and he tells the king to do the same, but Lawler responds by saying, I can't stand up right now. I'll, I'll admit, I, I did get a bit of a chuckle <laughs> with that one. So throughout the match, JR is pressing Sable to reveal the nature of her relationship with Vince McMahon and why she was brought back to the WWF, but she refuses to comment. I'm not sure if they ever have a payoff with this angle, so I'm suspecting it's just going to disappear at some point, like how Sable's secret admirer was sending her flowers earlier in the year, yeah. and that mystery person was never revealed. Oh, that's right. I haven't forgotten. I remember that. That was, the, that was on the last episode I was on, too. Oh, that's right. Yeah. They need to go back and pay that off. It was Mickey James. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Speaking of people who are still employed right now. Yeah. So anyway, back to Regal draws. The first thing I'll note about this match is the fact that, well, Regal just isn't in very good shape. In fact, when he moves around the ring, you can see his stomach jiggling quite a bit. At one point, when Draws starts punching Regal in the belly a few times, you can actually hear a fan yell out, Yeah, hit him in the flab! <laughs> I tell you, these, uh, these I fans somehow, the past I somehow minutes, missed that completely. Yeah, these fans the past few nights have been pretty merciless. Also, the crowd doesn't give a shit about either guy, and at this juncture, I can't say I blame them too much because Draws is a glorified jobber, yep. and fans who don't know Regal from his WCW days are probably wondering why they're watching a chunky Englishman with an unconventional ring style. Although, given given the theme song, they wouldn't really have even known that he was English because he didn't say anything, he just came That's out. That's true, exactly. And apparently he's a hard-rocking guy, we can gather that from his... <laughs> His theme a, very, song. A, a very generic hard rocking guy. That's, yeah, that's right. Surprisingly, though, Regal does end up going aerial for the finish. Draws climbed to the top rope, but Regal met him up there before Draws could execute a move. Execute a move, I should say. Regal then impressively stood on the top rope and delivered a double underhook superplex to Draws, then followed it up by putting him in the Regal stretch for the tap out victory. Adam, what were your thoughts on the WWF debut of Stephen Don't Call Me William Regal? <laughs> I believe my exact thoughts were, oh, hey, Steven Regal. Um, <laughs> yeah, again, as you said, it was a match against Draws, so you can't go in expecting that much. But I thought I thought it was a decent debut. I, I did like the, the kind of butterfly superplex finish into the into the Regal stretch, but uh, sadly not much came of this initial run because of those those demons. Thankfully, things do, 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 thankfully things do turn around for him in the future. They do. Do you think the man's man gimmick was uh, punishment for that? It very well could be. Yeah. Uh, my favorite, my favorite thing of all time is still the. I, it was a video I posted on the Rundown Facebook page a few months ago, and it, when it came across my feed again of them, uh, I believe it was at a house show, him coming out with with Daniel Bryan and yeah. in the middle of his entrance. No, it was like a velocity taping or something. In the middle of his entrance, they cut the the British theme and start playing the real man's man theme. Yep, and Regal just gives like a perfect look on his face too, like uh, okay, you, all right, you motherfuckers, yeah. It is a quality theme, though, I must whatever, say. Whatever the British version of the phrase, you motherfuckers, is, that's what it was. You toe rags. <laughs> so after a commercial break, a goatee sporting Michael Cole stood in the ring and introduced your 1998 king of the ring, Ken Shamrock. Cole asks Shamrock how it feels to be the king, and then Shamrock proceeds to cut a promo, which is never a good idea. Oh, he, he was never a talker. No. Shamrock should only be allowed to scream and yell in five-second increments, because any time he has to talk for more than about eh, 20 seconds, he totally loses the crowd. In fact, we actually get the amusing visual of eight fans wearing t-shirts, which spell out the name Shamrock, looking completely bored while he's talking. <laughs> he lost his own super fans. 
He says that competing in the King of the Ring was one of the hardest things he has ever had to do, which is surprising because two of his opponents in the tournament were Kama Mustafa and country singer Jeff Jarrett version 2.0. <laughs> Thankfully, he eventually gets interrupted by 1994 King of the Ring Owen Hart, who challenges him to a match later tonight. Shamrock accepts and says that Owen is in for a world of pain, but then 1997 King of the Ring Triple H appears at the top of the ramp along with China. And, in an interesting moment, Triple H debuts a nickname for himself, which he will end up using later in his career. If you're talking about having a match to determine the King of Kings, not one of you can be considered the King until you step into the ring with me. Shamrock then goes on to accept the challenge, and so, tonight, it will be Ken Shamrock versus Triple H, versus Owen Hart in what Jim Ross calls a King of Kings match. So there you have it, folks. Whoever wins this match will, now and forever, be the official King of Kings. Yep. No disputing it. No disputing it. And before capping off this segment, I'm going to splice together some clips from Shamrock's promo so you can see why he should never be allowed to speak for any prolonged stretch of time. I apologize in advance to the listeners. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. A fair warning, this goes on for a little more than two minutes, and it can be painful. Oh, you're so, so you're so cruel. I know, I know. I'm just saying if you want to, you know, hit the little skip ahead button on your iTunes, on your iPod, iPod, excuse me, on your iPhone, I wouldn't blame you. But uh, I think it's necessary <laughs> to listen as to why Ken Shamrock probably never got over to that, uh, that next level. So enjoy that. There's an old cliche, it's good to be king. Speaking of uh, King, speaking of accomplishments, speaking of great things, Rocky Maivia, you showed me something that I haven't seen in you before. It's the rock, idiot. You stepped into this ring, one-on-one, mano-a-mano, and did battle with me. I'm not saying that I agree with all the bullcrap that you did to me before that, like hitting me in the face with a chair and jumping me. No, 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 no. That's not over. That is not over by no long shot. We still got things to deal with. Well, you can sure talk, but can you walk the walk? I got one thing to say to you, Owen Hart. Actually, I got a couple things to say to you. I remember you broke my ankle a couple months ago. You want to step in the ring with me tonight? I said King on King. Well, you, your challenge is on, but let me tell you something. You got one thing that you got to look forward to tonight, and that's nothing but pain. So what you're saying, Hunter Hurst Helmsley and Owen Hart, is that you want you, Hunter Hurst, you, Owen Hart, and myself, to step inside the squared circle? You're pretty quick, Shamrock. You're catching on. Keep going. Yeah, you well, occasionally, I catch on a little quicker, but sometimes I'm a little slow. But now that you're trying to step on my turf, something that I accomplished last night and trying to take away from me, well, I'm going to catch on pretty quick. So what you're saying is, right here tonight, if you got the time... This is the place, and you, both of you, enter into my zone. Let's get it on. That about sums it up. 
<laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, we get back. Okay. So, Adam, what were your thoughts on these three kings and their promos? Shouldn't uh, if if Hunter is so confident that he is going to be the winner of the triple threat match, shouldn't he put the European title on the line? Oh, yes. Good point. He pretty much has not been doing that lately. <laughs> I can't. I think the last time was probably against Owen Hart a couple months ago when yeah. he defended it. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, Triple H's promo, fine. Owen Hart's promo, fine. They were both very short. But Ken Shamrock, goddamn. <laughs> like, it's almost like they just, they put the King of the Ring title on him and then they're like, huh, maybe we should check to see if he can cut a promo. Oh, shit. <laughs> and now, folks, you are in for a real treat. This next segment is the reason why Adam wanted to be a part of this episode. Not for Mick Foley going off the cell, not for Kane winning the WWF title, just and a, not for this... Just a happy coincidence. Happy coincidence. And also not for the subsequent Austin-Kane rematch. No, no. Adam, you wanted to join the Raw Attitude podcast tonight purely because this episode of Monday Night Raw yes. marks the official kickoff. My favorite worst thing that they've ever done on Monday Night Raw... And it is... The Brawl for All. The Brawl for All. Oh, my goodness. Which JR called Brawl for It All at least four times during this yes, episode. Which actually sounds better, I think, than Brawl for All. Mm-hmm. But um, for those of you who are not familiar with the Brawl for All or the Brawl for It All... And why, would, why tur- would you be? <laughs> yeah. So this was a tournament of legitimate shoot fights between the contracted wrestlers. Participation was voluntary, and those who competed were given a bonus for being ballsy enough to do some actual fighting. Now, your first question is likely, why the hell is this happening? Almost any fan is fully aware of the fact that wrestling is quote-unquote fake, and guess what? We're totally fine with that. We accept that going in. So why, in the middle of the scripted entertainment, would you randomly throw in legitimate fights which only serve to confuse the crowd and potentially injure your talent? What possible reason could there be for this occurring? Well, (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and play a clip from Kayfabe Commentary's shoot interview with Vince Russo, where he describes how this idea came about. This comes from why I have heat with JBL to this day. Okay, I was in the back. Um, it was me and somebody else, and I don't remember who it was. And JB started carrying on that he could take anybody in the company or in the locker room in a real bar fight. Okay, now, first of all, like I was not a big fan of JB personally, JBL personally. I thought he was a big bully, I thought he was a loudmouth. So all I had to do was sit back and hear him say how he could take any guy in a bar fight. Now, keep in mind, while he's saying this, I know some of the guys in the locker room. And while he's saying this, I'm like, I say to myself, you know what, I'd love to see that, you know. So sure enough, the next TV session with Vince, I I pitched it. I said, Vince, I said, listen, I, I, I pitched the whole idea of the Brawl for All, you know, let's do this. So there you have it. We're getting the brawl for all purely because Vince Russo didn't like the fact that JBL was running his mouth backstage. <laughs> now, now, JBL is, or, or Vince Russo rather, is certainly known as uh, what we call uh, uh, not the most trustworthy of people. So he could be full of shit here. But sure. I just enjoy, you know, the, the word for years was that the brawl for all was supposed to, was, was supposed to get, you know, JR's guy, Dr. Death over. And according to Vince Russo, in at least this interview, it really had nothing to do with that at all. Right, it was exactly. just Vince Russo wanting to see JBL get punched in the fucking face. Yeah, and certainly that's a very good justification for putting on a tournament of shoot fights, which will ultimately end up injuring several people. That's yeah. great. That's great. Yeah. 
Yeah. That being the, said, <laughs> oh, sorry, God. I was just gonna say that uh, we're gonna get into it here. My favorite thing, my favorite thing about this whole thing is not not that in future, you know, in in this first in this first episode of the Brawl for All, Jr. and King have enough trouble explaining what the goddamn rules are in the first place. Yes, but in future in future episodes, they have to make such a point. Because, as you said before, we know that wrestling is scripted. We know that Monday Night Raw is a scripted, episodic television program. They go to such lengths to remind us and inform us that this is real, folks. These are real fights. Like, right. it just, it, it, it almost is like, okay, it's like when Domino's, you know, reintroduced their pizza. And like, it was yeah. shit before, but this is really good. This whole thing was like, that sh that stuff is such fucking bullshit. These guys are really punching each other in the mouth, which is a really great way to present your product. Yes. And that will become the blurring of shoot and work will obviously become a huge uh, Vince Russo staple throughout the years. Yeah. But this is definitely one where you can say, yeah, it's definitely a shoot. And so, unfortunately, let's just go and dive into it. And on the note of the rules, <laughs> I'll actually I'll play the clip of Jim Ross explaining the brawl for all rules because uh, hey, why not? Yeah, you have to know what you're getting grab, yourself into. So grab a pen and paper, folks. You're going to need it. Yes, that's right. So take a listen to the rules of the brawl for all. This is a combination combat. You can wrestle. You can box. You can throw down your opponent. Tell them the rules, Jr. Three one-minute rounds. Ladies and gentlemen, point system in effect. The most punches per round will earn you five points. For each takedown you earn, you will receive five points. And for each knockdown you earn, you will receive ten points. The legendary Danny Hodge will be the official for this contest, and a knockdown ends the brawl. No, a knockout. Knockout. Is knockout. The one part that jumps out to me is the fact that in addition to knockouts, this tournament also allows takedowns. Now, in mixed martial arts, that's obviously a pretty common practice, and it makes sense because those fighters wear those thin combat gloves. But in the Brawl for All, they're wearing fucking boxing gloves. <laughs> so, so how are you going to encourage takedowns in a tournament where you have a massive level of cushioning on your hands? I don't know. It worked pretty it, well for Steve Blackman. It does. That's true. I mean, it makes it pretty impossible for you to actually physically grab someone. I guess you can take them down, but... It's almost as if they barely put any thought into this or something. It's two points for a takedown. It's three points for a knockout. You win the match by TKO, but there's also point like 16 points for most punches in a round. Plus, if your mother comes out and she yells at you and about for fighting in the ring, then that's minus six points. It's also three points if you solve Steinmetz's theorem. <laughs> I, I <don't> <laughs> and to let us know this is the real deal, they have stools in opposite corners and the turnbuckles are covered in those boxing turnbuckle pad things. I'm not sure what they call them, but you'll know what I mean if you've ever seen any boxing match ever. Yeah. And so, let's get into our first matchup. A battle of two wrestlers who have impressive real-life pedigrees. New York Golden Gloves champion Mark Merrow versus all-around martial arts badass Steve Blackman. Now, fun and fact... And oh, apparently, go going, going back to that Vince Russo interview that you showed me that you just played a clip of, Russo was more than happy to see Mark Merrow get the floor wiped with him in this first round yes. match. Yeah, can't say I blame him. By the way, a fun fact, if you want to see these guys go head-to-head -head in another real-life venue, look up their debate on Nancy Grace back in 2007 when they discussed the Chris Benoit murder-suicide. Oh, fun Jesus. times. But that's, that's neither here nor there, but you can see Steve yeah. Blackman and Mark Merrow debate each other. Oh, boy. So round one, yeah, check that out. <laughs> So I, I won't. Dominant. <laughs> no, all right, fine. <laughs> Your loss. 
So yes, round one was clearly dominated by Blackman, who did manage to take Marrow to the ground four times, despite that aforementioned boxing glove handicap. And on that note, with his boxing background, it seemed like Marrow just wanted to throw some punches, and Blackman outsmarted him by basically just tackling him over and over. Yeah. The WWF's unofficial scoring for the first round had Blackman up by a score of 25 to nothing. <laughs> pretty, pretty big lead to come yeah. back from. The, 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 the crowd, as soon as the bell rings for the first round, the crowd immediately hates this. Yes, exactly. Immediately hates this. Yeah. Both men actually did some more punching in round two, but it was basically more of the same. Blackman would tackle Marrow every time they got close to each other in order to gain five points. It's the smart move if you want to win the brawl, but it ain't exactly compelling television. Mm -hmm. Leave it to Steve Blackman to somehow manage to make a shoot fight as boring as possible. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, at the end of the second round, you could hear a sizable portion of the crowd start to boo, and even better, they loudly started chanting, We want wrestling. That was actually my next note. (laughs) Yeah. Imagine that. Wrestling fans want to see wrestlers wrestle. What a concept. Blackman landed even more takedowns in round three to even more boos from the crowd. <laughs> and when it was all over, when it was all over, Blackman was awarded the victory. They didn't even bother to announce the judge's decision like they do in boxing or MMA. Instead, Tony Chimmel just said Blackman was the winner and he headed backstage to zero fanfare. You would think they might look at how poorly this segment died on the air and just pull the plug. But no, this tournament goes on for two fucking months. It's a tournament, yeah. man. We got to play it out. <laughs> That's right. We just had the King of the Ring tournament. That was great. The Brawl for All will be even better. And yet somehow, with that being said, I'm still looking forward to it for some reason. But Adam, <laughs> Adam, what did you think of our first of two Brawl for All matches on this show tonight? Yeah, it's it. Uh, the, the Brawl for All kind of actually suffered for the same fate the XFL did and that the first televised match was boring as fuck and a blowout. Yeah. I think maybe if they had started with JBL versus uh, Mark Canterbury... Then, then with the two big guys just trying to beat the fuck out of each other, maybe it right. would have gone over a little better. But, but yeah, this one, like you said, was take down, 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 take down. In your house, take down. <laughs> I think that was one of them. Yeah, and you actually make a really good point. If they had reversed these with that second one being much more physical, uh, which we'll get to in a little bit, you, you may be right about that. The crowd may have actually come around to it, so I don't know. But uh, we'll get to that one in just a bit. So when we come back from commercial, Kevin Kelly is in the locker room with WWF champion Kane, Paul Bearer, and Mankind. Kevin asks Kane why he accepted Stone Cold Steve Austin's challenge for a rematch, so Kane puts his voice box to his throat <laughs> And says he wants to prove he'll be a better champion than his brother, The Undertaker, ever was. Kane then storms off with Paul Bearer following him. And then I just get a bit sad because one night after almost killing himself, Mick Foley is relegated to just standing in the background during this segment and not even getting to say a word. Yes, that's right. This is the only time that Mick Foley appears on this episode of Raw. I'm sure right about now he must have been feeling like it was all worth it. (laughs) That's crazy to me. They didn't even put him, basically, they barely didn't use him at all on Raw the night after. Well, he was probably a little hurt, to be fair. Could have cut a promo if he wasn't uh, brain damaged. (laughs) So we then cut to a shot of the parking lot where the Undertaker is wearing a leather vest with no shirt on underneath and dragging his luggage into the arena. For some reason, Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler both play it up like they have no (laughs) idea who that was. That was my next note. Yeah. 
It, it was it was quite clearly the Undertaker. So obviously the Undertaker. Who's that? I don't know. I've never seen him uh, not wearing his dead man gear before. <laughs> Actually, well, that's not even true because he was wearing sweatpants a few weeks ago. But yeah, seeing the Undertaker wheel his luggage into the arena is something we should never get to see. <laughs> it really, really ruins the mystique by making him so relatable. I'm kind of waiting for the next episode of the show where he accidentally locks his keys inside of his car and then he spends 30 seconds telling himself what an idiot he is. Wrestlers, they're just like us. Don't don't make what? The Undertaker relatable. Come on, don't, don't do that. What do you mean the coffee bar is out of half and half? <laughs> exactly. And you and I, when we were when we were younger, used to envision Undertaker and Kane as little kids. Yes, indeed. Which also make them more relatable, too. Like, My favorite. And our go-to was, I want a peanut butter sandwich, no, no. crust. No, that was yours. Mine was, I want a cheeseburger happy meal. Yes, that's exactly, yeah. Oh, they're just Mom. so relatable. Mom, Kane won't stop touching me. Yeah. Why are you hitting yourself? <laughs> oh, good times. So our next match legitimately popped me because it was Val Venus versus Kai and Tai member Dick Togo. Very who appropriate. Was accompanied. Oh, yes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that is a very appropriate name, given where this angle goes. Uh, who was accompanied, of course, by Yamaguchi-san. And speaking of Yamaguchi-san, before the match started, Val chased him around the ring with a chair for some reason. But then he paused. <laughs> he then paused when he saw that Yamaguchi-san's wife was sitting in the front row. And you may want to remember no. that detail because it will become important in the coming weeks that, and end up spawning one of the greatest quotes uh, in WWE history. That was when that clicked for me. That was my next note was, holy Jesus, this is the start of the choppy choppy angle. Oh, yes. I think that quote is still somehow like six weeks away, unfortunately, <laughs> but can't wait to take the journey. So in his pre-match promo, because they're in Cleveland, Valve mentioned their hometown, the Cleveland Indians, made some baseball puns, first base, long balls, etc. But the important thing to note is that this is the first time where he referred to his tallywhacker as the big Valboski. So truly, some history is being this made is, here today. This is just a truly monumental episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast. I, I agree. There's a lot of history on this show. This is also the first instance of Val going head-to-head against a heel wrestler, so it seems like they have subtly turned him face since we last saw him on Raw two weeks ago, which is probably the smart move. Yeah. Oh, I do have a note about a sign here, because it was because the person, whoever it was in the, like the third row, held this sign up so many fucking times. By the way, uh, Hoy is gay, if anybody's wondering. Yes, yeah. Oh, you get that on every episode <laughs> of Raw these days. <laughs> so, so-and-so is gay. Those, those are all over the place. So at the beginning of the match, Jim Ross mentioned an upcoming event at Foxborough Stadium called WWF Foot Brawl, which was scheduled to take place on August 8th and feature members of the New England Patriots. Adam, I mention this because we are both New England residents, and I must admit I was mildly curious about this event, so I looked it up, and it turns out it ended up being canceled. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to disappoint, but it actually would have been two years before the Patriots drafted Tom Brady anyway, so it probably wouldn't have been worth attending. I also, shortly after the match, yeah. Well, the Patriots have this player called Tom Brady. Was that was, and, was that Drew Bledsoe? Uh, yes, okay. yes, it was. As a matter of fact, yeah, it was still the Drew Bledsoe era. Good call, good call. That's all I got. That's all I got. Well played. So, shortly after the match begins, born again Christian Dustin Runnels joins the commentary team to tell them that now is a perfect opportunity for them to spread the word of God. Dustin Runnels' gimmick is obviously Shawn Michaels. <laughs> so. Specifically, he singles out Val Venus as someone who is in need of being saved, presumably because he fucks on camera for money. 
And speaking of Val, he ends up winning this short but solid match against Togo when he hits him with a double-arm suplex and then follows up with the money shot for the three-count. After the match, Val goes over to Mrs. Yamaguchi-san and begins gyrating his package in her face, which draws the ire of Yamaguchi-san himself. He slaps Venus in the face, so Val shoves him to the ground because bullying an older man and sexually harassing his wife clearly makes Val a face. Funaki and Teo then come to, check, come to the ring to check on Yamaguchi, so Val grabs a chair and proceeds to hit all three members <laughs> of Kai and Tai in the head with it because, well, it Why was not? the Attitude Era. It was the Attitude Era, and even the lowliest jobbers had to take unprotected headshots. <laughs> Adam, Adam, your thoughts on this segment featuring Val Venus, Kai and Tai, Yamaguchi-san, and Dustin Runnels. <laughs> yeah, I just got so excited when I realized that it was the beginning of the of the of the Val Venus Kayantai angle. I just it made me so happy. Those were good Val times. seemed to be getting very excited as well. I I had forgotten mostly about the whole Dustin Runnels born again thing uh, yeah. up until up until spoiler alert he brings back Gold Dust. What? But, <laughs> but that was so painful to listen to. Like I can I can just imagine myself or any other wrestling fan at that point sitting at home going the fuck man (laughs) this is not what we're supposed to be talking about indeed the first time he did it was a couple weeks ago on raw where he he basically he was just himself he was just dustin runnels he won a match and then kevin kelly interviews him and he's like i gotta give all props to my lord and savior jesus christ and it's just kind of like what what's going on here but this actually this match also reminded me of the the fun part about the attitude era that you got at this point, a bunch of guys in this match who are kind of low on the card, and they all have characters. Yeah, they're all characters. Yeah, even though they're they're you know at this point, Dustin Reynolds is not necessarily a great character, but he he has an angle at least. He has something going for him. So, I guess that's a uh, that's one thing I kind of miss a little bit. Yeah, we've we've the we, product. We've talked about that on the rundown too, where where you know your your top guys, you know, you got your Dean Ambrose who's crazy, and your you know your Seth Rollins who's the architect, and then you got your Titus O'Neil who's Titus O'Neil. Right. You got your Sami Zayn, who's a good wrestler. Yeah. <laughs> the underdog from the underground, whatever the fuck that go. means, because they never yeah. tell us. Yeah. So, so there's that. And up next, we got a quick shot of Edge hanging out in the audience, because that's probably where they would prefer that he stays after he broke Jose Estrada's <laughs> neck in his debut match last week. We then cut backstage where Michael Cole interviews Stone Cold Steve Austin, or rather, he tries to interview him, but Austin calls him a jackass and tells him to leave. And just like that, my admiration for Steve Austin somehow increased even more. (laughs) And we segued into our next match, the King of Kings match, 1998 King of the Ring Ken Shamrock versus 1997 King of the Ring Triple H versus 1994 King of the Ring Owen Hart. Strange, I wonder why 1995 King of the Ring Mabel didn't get an invitation. (laughs) Maybe maybe it got lost in the mail. On your knees, dog. Yeah, that's right. Well, we'll get into why he shouldn't be using that nickname. Just a little bit. <laughs> it should be noted that while Owen was on his way to the ring, Shamrock actually jumped him from behind before the match could start. That's not appropriate king behavior, if you ask me. Indeed. I'd say this was a very solid match with some fun highlights, including Shamrock putting Owen in a sleeper, and then Hunter putting Shamrock in a sleeper while he still had Owen in the sleeper. We also got an interesting moment where you could see the fans' attention was geared towards something going on in the crowd. Yeah. And then we could hear then we could hear someone hit the ring bell. So I'm assuming some asshole fan might have jumped the railing and started ringing it. Way to go, Cleveland. Way to go. <laughs> Another fun moment was the camera clearly picking up Triple H, yelling out, Sharpshooter at Owen, who then put Shamrock in. 
the sharpshooter. Yep. Imagine that. I'm surprised they didn't edit that out because it has to be one of the most obvious called spots of all time. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, we got a bit of a botch where Shamrock put Owen in the ankle lock, and Owen clearly tapped the mat once before Hunter broke it up, but neither the ref nor that drunken fan called for the bell. <laughs> The match then ended when The Rock came to ringside and smacked Triple H in the face with the Intercontinental title behind the ref's back. Shamrock then tossed Owen into the barricade and headed back into the ring, where he pinned the unconscious Hunter, giving the victory to the world's most dangerous man, and also giving him the official title of King of Kings. So apparently Triple H has been using that nickname for all these years, when he clearly did not earn it. Yes. After the match, the remaining members of DX emerged from backstage and started beating on The Rock, so the remaining Nation of Domination members then came out to even the odds, and both factions brawled backstage. Meanwhile, in the ring, Owen jumped Shamrock from behind and attempted to put him in his brother's classic move, the ring post figure four leg lock, <laughs> but he couldn't He couldn't quite get it locked in, so he was just kind of hanging off the ring post. It was a bit awkward. But Adam, what were your thoughts Still. on this King of Kings match and the DX Nation of Domination feud, and are you psyched for an Owen Shamrock match? <laughs> that still looks painful. I'm glad Hunter's obsession with spitting dates back to his DX days. Um, yeah, so to speak. Is it me, or should Owen have patented that Enzigiri? Uh, especially after the oh. especially after the Syracuse incident, he could beauty. he could have called it HBK, the Heartbreak Killer. Ah, nice. Boom. He had he had the best Enzigiri for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Eat your heart out, Bad News Brown. Uh, I seem to recall the Owen Hart Ken Shamrock matches being decent, probably mostly because of Owen Hart. But um, yeah, I mean, like we said, in a couple of weeks we get the whole uh, we get the whole Nation of Domination thing with DX, so that's uh, something to look forward to. Indeed, we do on the very next episode of the show. But up next, the Undertaker heads to the ring for an interview with Michael Cole, and he is thankfully wearing his standard ring gear and not the leather vest we saw him in earlier tonight when he was dragging his luggage behind him. Cole asks him why he interfered in the first blood match the night before, and Taker says that he and Kane may not see eye to eye, but he was not going to let his own brother set himself on fire. Cole says that his actions resulted in Stone Cold Steve Austin losing the WWF title, but Taker says, quote, I did what I had to do. This then causes Vince McMahon to emerge from backstage with a mic. He doubts that Taker was being compassionate for his brother, and he says the only reason he helped Austin win was because Taker knew he could beat Kane for the WWF title, but he knows he can't beat Stone Cold. Vince then warns The Undertaker that Hell will have no fury like what he will do to him if Taker interferes in tonight's Austin-Kane rematch. That doesn't really seem to make much sense to me since Taker helped get the title off of Vince's sworn <laughs> enemy last night. Like, was, was that just kind of weird? I, I know. What, what were your thoughts on this Undertaker-Vince promo? I, I, I didn't even have any notes on my, on my notes here. I don't know. It was just... Yeah, it was it was another one of uh, you, you can't tell really you can't people should not be trying to tell the Undertaker what to do in the first place because he right. is he is the Undertaker and I don't care if you're Agreed. Vince McMahon or not I mean we we saw this you know last year at WrestleMania as well you don't you don't try to boss the Undertaker around right it, it, the promo was just kind of weird to me because it was basically it was basically Vince saying Undertaker you interfered in the match last night you better not interfere tonight. Even though obviously the night before Austin was, or, uh, I should say Undertaker was directly responsible for Austin losing the title, which is exactly what Vince wanted to right, happen. Right. So why the fuck is he taking him to task for it? It, uh, I don't know. Like you said, it seems like they did scramble a little bit here because that that really makes no sense. Vince should be out there thanking Taker, <laughs> in my humble opinion. 
So our next encounter was our second Brawl for All matchup of the night. Yeah, Bradshaw versus Southern Justice member Mark Canterbury. A couple quick notes here. This was the first time on Raw that the former Henry O. Godwin went by his real name in a WWF ring. And of course, what better place to do that than in the Brawl for All? Second, as you heard in that earlier clip, the whole reason the Brawl for All is taking place is because Vince Russo wanted someone to shut up JBL. So how would this match go? Let's find out. This one was basically the opposite of the earlier Mero Blackman fight in the sense that these guys were just attempting to punch the shit out of each other instead of going yeah. for takedowns. Canterbury did actually attempt one takedown toward the end of the round, but it was mostly two dudes throwing haymakers at each other for the first 30 seconds until they got winded and slowed things down. Surprisingly, even though they were taking it to each other, the fans still booed the crap out of them oh, yeah. after the round ended, so it seems like they're not at all that invested in actual fighting. The unofficial results after round one had Bradshaw ahead 5 nothing, based on the fact that he landed more punches. Yeah. This... <laughs> This brawl for all match, and, and this is going to be a very this is going to be a very closed joke for most people. But reminded, this is what I think of when I listen to the David Cross bit about the redneck fight. Ah. <laughs> this is what comes to mind. Y'all open up the wrong motherfucking can of worms, motherfucker. This is what I picture: ah. is is two guys like JBL and Henry O'Godwin trying to beat the shit out of each other. Exactly. And for those of you who want to listen to that particular bit, I believe that's on the stand-up album called "Shut Up, You Fucking Baby." That's the one. There you go. So round two featured Canterbury getting some punches in, but Bradshaw got the better of him, nailing Canterbury with a couple of right hands, but not quite enough to knock him out. Canterbury desperately went for a takedown in an attempt to slow Bradshaw's momentum, and it seemed to work. When they went to their separate corners, you could see that Bradshaw's mouth guard had some blood on it, despite the fact that Canterbury was hit more times. However, the fans were still not buying it, and Adam, I don't know if you heard what they were chanting. I initially thought it was boring, but the closer I listened to it, the more it actually sounded like Goldberg. <laughs> so that's, that's gotta hurt. That's I, gotta hurt. I had written it down as boring, so I'll have to go back and check that out. It could have been, but for some reason I, I heard Goldberg, but it, it could be either one. So round three basically consisted of two things. Canterbury landing a takedown and Canterbury unsuccessfully attempting a second takedown. <laughs> that was basically it. And again, the crowd booed the shit out of them because, well, it wasn't much fun to watch. After some deliberation, Tony Chimmel then announced that your winner was... Bradshaw. That means that Russo is so far 0 for 1 <laughs> on attempting to shut up JBL. And then because he's a dick, Bradshaw just left the ring and went backstage after the fight without the customary showing of sportsmanship for your opponent afterwards. Good times. Yeah. So, Adam, what were your thoughts on this fight and the brawl for all in general so uh, far? Again, it's my it's my favorite dumbest thing they've ever done. Um, I, Jerry Lawler, I don't know if you caught this. Jerry Lawler during commentary called it an innovative combination combat, and <laughs> which is yeah, it's definitely innovative combination combat. Certainly not like I don't know what you maybe uh, I don't know a mixed I don't know maybe a martial art maybe. Yeah. Um, not familiar. <laughs> not familiar with that yeah this... also if they're going to do this they should really have it at one of these they should they should have put shamrock versus sever <laughs> yeah this was just such a bad idea from top to bottom agreed and then they went back and used the theme song for uh for uh what the fuck is his name now zeke ezekiel jackson oh really yeah, that's what that's what his rap was. This here is what you call domination. That's what the that's what the track was. The beat was for his for his theme song was the the brawl for all theme. Wow, 
Well, I suppose that's fitting for the last ever ECW <laughs> champion, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that happened. Don't forget that that happened, people. Ezekiel Jackson was the last ever couldn't have just, ECW champion. Couldn't have just gone out with Christian. Had to do the title change, you motherfucker. Of course. Of course. We then got a quick shot of Edge standing in the crowd once again, right in front of a lovely woman who was holding up a sign which said, quote, I will suck it. <laughs> I guess... I guess that explains why he was hanging out in that particular section. I actually put a picture of that on our Twitter page, at Raw Attitude Pod, if you want to check it out. So, pretty impressive. Did you tag Edge in it? I did not tag Edge in it. I I probably should have. We were then joined by LOD2000, but not Sonny, who Jim Ross claims was under the weather. Yeah, (laughs) that's that's certainly one way of putting it. Animal grabs a mic and says she had a big surprise. She had the sniffles, if you know what I mean. Yeah, oh, she was doing a lot of sniffing. (laughs) So Animal grabs a mic and says they have a big surprise for the crowd tonight because making his return to the WWF was none other than the man who managed LOD sporadically from 1981 to 1992, Precious Paul Ellering, who is sporting a sweet horseshoe mustache. Mm -hmm. And by the way, when I say that Ellering managed them, I don't just mean he was their on-camera manager. He actually legitimately managed their expenses, set up their flights, booked their hotels, and so on. So a rare instance of an actual manager is kind of cool. Why did Hawk have normal hair? Because <laughs> it's LOD 2000. It ain't your daddy's LOD. <laughs> 2000 means too cool for the inverted mohawk. That's exactly right. We're past that now. Actually, by the way, Adam, it's at this point that I start to realize a pattern. So the WWF has either been debuting new people, repackaging existing superstars, or bringing back former talents on almost every Raw after a pay-per-view since WrestleMania 14. I actually came up with a quick list here. So the night after WrestleMania 14, X-Pac returns, Dan Severn debuts, and Kayentai debuts. The night after Unforgiven, there's nothing here, that's the one exception. But the night after No Way Out, Jacqueline debuts, and the Godwins get repackaged as Southern Justice. Hmm. And then the night after King of the Ring, Stephen Regal debuts, and now in this segment, Paul Ellering returns. So Hawk says that LOD have been having some tough times lately, but they're going to be reborn under Ellering's leadership. He then turns the mic over to Ellering, but before he can say anything, the Disciples of Apocalypse ride their motorcycles to the ring. The DOA enter the ring, and Ellering then says, I want to introduce you to my new team, 8-Ball and Skull. And sure enough, DOA and Ellering then start beating the crap out of LOD, and it just I... wouldn't be the Attitude Era unless we got a completely nonsensical <laughs> turn. Now I don't, would it? I don't know if I would say Paul Ellering was beating the crap out of LOD. <laughs> He was mostly yeah, just, he was kind of just whipping him. hitting them with a rolled up newspaper. Yeah, he was smacking them with the Wall Street Journal. So, Adam, what did you and think I of love, this segment? And I love it that JR took weird. the time to call out that it was the Wall Street Journal, like specifically. It was. So, actually, yeah, what did you think of this segment? And do you think it's weird that Ellering actually looks better now in 2017 <laughs> than he did 19 years ago? Um, given that I honestly do not have any kind of clue what came of this angle, if anything, uh, it was uh, it was what it was, I guess. Uh, my only comment during it was, why, Paul? Why? Yeah. It's kind of funny, too, because Paul Ellering, for WWF fans, Paul Ellering literally only managed them in the WWF for a couple months. Yeah. And the only noteworthy part of that was probably them finding Rocco, yeah. <laughs> the hand puppet. Like, it was Paul Ellering and Rocco as a package deal. Now, and now. And LOD was basically gone. Now, now. He wasn't a hand puppet. He was a he was a ventriloquist dummy. That's that's true. Sorry, there's a big difference there. That's true. And also, this I, I thought it was kind of funny that this segment just made LOD seem just so completely pathetic. I was, I was going to say being, I was like, going to say dumb as shit, but that works, too. 
Well, yeah, there's that as well. But basically, like, Hawk and Animal are out there being like, we've had some tough times lately, but we're going to be reborn under the leadership of Paul Ellering, and then cut to one minute later where it's like, fuck you, I'm going to be with these... With Skull and 8-Ball, two of the biggest chumps on the roster. Yeah. So, it's funny, too, because Paul Ellering, I suppose, in real life, is actually supposed to be a really smart guy. Yeah. Uh, I guess he's, like, really good with stocks and things of that That's nature. why he reads the but Wall Street you, Journal. You wouldn't... That's right. But you wouldn't know how smart he was from his on-camera character, where he ditches LOD for the fucking DOA. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. So we then go backstage where Kevin Kelly has tracked down The Undertaker. He asks him if he's going to heed Vince McMahon's warning and stay out of the Austin Kane rematch, but Taker only responds by saying that no one tells him what to do. Although, really, didn't Kevin Kelly just tell him to do an interview? (laughs) Never mind. mind. (laughs) And on that note, it's now time for the rematch. WWF champion Kane, accompanied by his father, Paul Bearer, versus challenger Stone Cold Steve Austin. This, one thing I'll note about this match right Oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, this match has one of my favorite things uh, that I do miss from the current product. Uh, the ring announcer saying, the following contest is scheduled for one fall with TV time remaining. Yes, yes. I think TV I mentioned that the last time I was on the show, too, but. Yeah, which is kind of funny. So if like if Raw went off the air and they were in the middle of the match, would the, would the referee just jump in there and be like, nope, sorry, t- TV time's yeah. over, the match is a draw. I guess the bell just rings. Yeah. Show's over, nothing to see here. All you, fa- so one thing all you fans can go is, home, we're not going to have a finish. That's right. As soon as as soon as they go off the air, Taker and or, uh, Austin and Kane just drop the gimmicks and be like, all right, see you later, all right, money. <laughs> So yeah, the one thing I'll note about this match right off the bat is that Kane did a lot more selling than we're accustomed to seeing from him. Usually once he goes down to the mat, he kind of does the Jason Voorhees sit-up routine, but Austin took him down several times, and he didn't do the sit-up at all, so I'm starting to think that maybe the WWF title might actually be weakening him. <laughs> just a thought. It's just a theory. Maybe that's why he's only a one-time it's, it's champion. Kryptonite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So after about five minutes of brawling, Kane took Austin down and put him into a chin lock, which was the signal for The Undertaker to emerge from backstage and walk to the ring. In fairness, he did not interfere, but he was standing at ringside, so maybe he's exploiting a loophole in Vince McMahon's statement. Shortly after Taker's arrival, Kane hit Austin with a chokeslam, but he briefly paused to stare at his brother, and then, well, take a listen. Kane has been obsessed by popping his brother... The Undertaker, all off, two goals, two goals, ah! So yes, that's right, Kane picked Austin up for a tombstone, but Stone Cold squirmed free. He kicked Kane in the stomach and went for a stunner, but Kane then bounced him off the ropes. Kane missed a big boot, and Austin then landed another boot to the stomach, and this time he actually did hit Kane with the stunner. Your winner in 8 minutes and 26 seconds, and now a two-time World Wrestling Federation champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin. After the match, The Undertaker entered the ring and stared down Austin. However, Paul Bearer distracted Taker outside the ring, and Taker then took a swipe at him. When he turned back around, Austin then hit The Undertaker with a stunner as well. Stone Cold took his title and walked up the aisleway as Taker and Kane lay motionless across from each other. 
However, we then got the nifty visual of both brothers sitting up at, well, roughly the same time. Harkening back to what I said earlier about Kane selling more than usual, he was actually lying motionless on the canvas from that stunner for more than a minute, whereas Taker bounced back up after less than 20 <laughs> seconds. So I guess we can figure out which guy will continue to be main eventing this summer. We then go off the air with Stone Cold flipping off both The Undertaker and Kane, who are standing side by side without attempting to kill each other for the first time. Have they reunited? You'll have to stay tuned to find out. Although, with that being said, if you're watching this episode on the WWE Network, they actually show a segment called Extra Attitude, which, which includes footage from when this episode of Raw went off the air. And sure enough, The Undertaker and Kane did proceed to fight each other yeah. after the show ended with Taker hitting Kane with a choke slam and then punching Paul Bearer in the face for good measure. Yeah. Taker heads backstage and Bearer yells toward the heavens in frustration. He and Kane then walk backstage together as the show goes off the air once and for all. So Adam, what were your thoughts on Stone Cold Steve Austin winning the WWF title back from Kane one night later with the Undertaker looming as a potential opponent for them both? Yeah. I mean, the last time I was on the extra attitude was so much better. What was it the last time? I don't remember, but it wasn't Paul Bearer screaming. So, yeah, I, was, I, uh... they they do this every now and then. I, I don't know why. Just for select shows, they will just put extra attitude at the end, yeah, it was even something... though sometimes it's uneventful. I feel like it was some kind of it was like some kind of match with Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie and Steve Austin versus somebody. Oh, you're right. That's yeah. what it was. It was um, after it was. Uh, I think it was DX. There was like an impromptu match with DX when they were still heels yeah. fighting against Austin and Owen Hart when he was still a face or something like yeah, that. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. what it was. The only other note I have from this episode was the fan with the Waka 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 sign, uh, yes. proving that the partnership between the WWE and the Muppets goes way back. Now, I mean, the match itself was was uh, was pretty good. I mean, it did what it needed to do. It got, uh, like you said, like we said, this whole this whole episode of them scrambling and kind of panicking and got the title back onto Austin so that they could uh, continue with that as opposed to Kryptonite Kane. Uh, being the champion yeah. that nobody really wanted to be champion in the first place. But uh, all in all, not a bad, uh, a decent episode of Raw. Again, I was really mainly in it for the Brawl for All because it's just uh, so fucking terrible. Indubitably. I feel like if it was a different time, if this wasn't a time when they were so competitive in the ratings with Nitro, they may have given Kane, you know, like a two-month run up to SummerSlam or something like that with the title. But because... They're, they were so neck and neck with WCW, they probably were like, well, we have to put our best foot forward and keep it on Austin, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, because I'm sure, like you said, they were planning, they were, from everything I heard, they were planning on that Undertaker feud. Undertaker was injured, you know, the injured ankle. And so uh, Kane as a champion by himself, Kane feuding with the Undertaker for the title, I think would have been a big draw. But Kane just as champion, I don't think is going to draw the people in. So that's why they were like, fuck it, put it back on Austin. Right. Indeed. Well, we got a little bit more to cover, but for now, let's go to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heist like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap So last week, Raw defeated Nitro for the fourth consecutive week by the narrow score of 4.27 to 4.10. This week, however, Nitro was not even in the ballpark. <laughs> Can't imagine why. I know. 
The post-King of the Ring hype combined with the Austin Kane rematch meant that WCW did not stand a chance on this evening as the WWF pulled off a huge victory, 5.36 to 4.05. Yeah, that that 5.36 rating will actually be the highest rating Raw scores in all of 1998 when going head-to-head against Nitro in its regular time slot. So Raw scored a 5.69 against Nitro back in late April, but that was when Nitro was only on for one hour due to the NBA playoffs. But in terms of the head-to-head and regular time slots, this is the highest rating for Raw all fucking year. Pretty cool. Certainly at this point, WCWS has feel like their backs are against the wall. Yep, sorry. And it's all because of the debut of Steven Regal. That's right. <laughs> Regal equals ratings. Or maybe go. the Brawl for All. Maybe the Brawl for All equals ratings. <laughs> Wait a minute. Put Steven Regal in the Brawl for All. There, there is. Go. That's the key. There we go. That's, Problem solved. That's what they did wrong. So certainly at this point, WCW has to feel like their backs are against the wall. And that will result in them pulling out all the stops next week when Nitro was live from the Georgia Dome in front of 40,000 fans. Probably wow. the biggest Nitro in their history next week. But that's next week. Here's what you could have been watching on Nitro this week Ooh. up against the post-King of the Ring Raw. Canyon defeated Horace. <laughs> Little, Dragon, Little Dragon defeated Eddie Guerrero. That's kind of sad. The Giant defeated Judo Sawa and Sumo Fuji in a handicap match. <laughs> Two, two legends of the ring, obviously. Tell me those names are as racist as they sound. <laughs> kind of. Sumo Fuji sounds. That, yeah. <laughs> Just throwing two things together. The Giant defeated Sumo Fuji and Suzuki Toyota. In a hand- <laughs> yeah, no. So Lex Luger and Sting defeated Jim Neidhart and the British Bulldog. Oh, no, the, the, the New Heart Foundation. That's right. Saturn defeated Reese. A debuting El Vampiro defeated Brad Armstrong, and of course he would later just go by the name Vampiro. Alex Wright and Disco Inferno defeated Shima Nobunaga and Magnum Tokyo. Again, some more some more random Japanese wrestlers there. Ultimo Dragon defeated Dean Malenko via Countout. Chris Benoit and Steve Mongo McMichael defeated Harlem Heat. And Goldberg defeated Glacier to retain his United States Championship. However, perhaps the most infamous moment on this show is when Eric Bischoff hosted his own talk show on a set which looked very similar to The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Oh, God. Yeah, you remember this? I do. Yes. But only because because at that point I was still watching The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and so they were showing clips from it about Eric Bischoff trying to rip them off in the lead-up to that wonderful match. Yes. Oh, that's coming soon. So Bischoff had Scott Steiner on to ramble for about five minutes and refer to NBA star Carl Malone as, quote, Dennis Malone. <laughs> not not pretty. But don't hang up on Carl Malone. <laughs> Is that a Crank Anchors <laughs> reference? It's a Crank Anchors reference. Classic television. Beanie bitch. All right. <laughs> and later in the night, DDP and Carl Malone confronted Hollywood Hulk Hogan with Malone actually slamming Hogan in the middle of the ring. They then laid out a challenge for Dennis Rodman to show up next week in Atlanta, and that was your Nitro. Adam, does that sound like a show you would have wanted to watch? No. <laughs> That's why I didn't. True. Yeah, you, you were pretty loyal to the WWF the whole time, I wouldn't right? say I was pretty loyal to WWF. I was 100% loyal to WWF. You didn't even switch over for the NWO? Nope. Impressive. Mm-hmm. Even when they were giving you Mantar, you're like, nope, I'm sticking. <laughs> I'm sticking with it. This is going to get good eventually, goddammit. Yeah. Well, with that I being sat. Said, I sat through the SummerSlam pre-show with the the TL Hopper and the Turd in the pool. I sat through the whole goddamn thing. I, yeah, I remember that. Oh God. 
And so, with that being said, let's go to the Raw synopsis. So, Adam, what were your overall thoughts on this episode of Monday Night Raw? As we've discussed, like we said, it was a, a, a scramble episode where things were not turning out as they had hoped, and so they had to basically, you could tell, I, I feel like, for most, at least for most of it, for the main event angle, that they were, you know, rewriting it basically that afternoon, most likely. Again, we got the debut of the Brawl for All, which is just so, just a, such a wonderfully terrible idea. And, uh, and of course, the, the debut of, of Steven Regal, who would go on to do some terrible things, but later on, later on, go on to do some very good things. So, absolutely. Yeah, I actually, I was actually a pretty big fan of this show because it wasn't, it's the Attitude Era, so you're not getting a ton of great wrestling, although the King of Kings match was very good. But it's just kind of one of those things where so much shit happens that you're just kind of like, oh, wow, Steven Regal's debuting. Oh, shit, there's Paul Ellering. It's one of those things where it's kind of like you're you're just seeing what happens next because they just constantly are throwing different crap out there. Yeah. The Brawl for All is probably the best example of that, yeah. of throwing out a shitty idea and being like, hey, let's give this a shot. So, unfortunately, Vince Russo didn't quite get the hint after the first time around because, as I said, this goes on for two more goddamn months. But a great Attitude Era episode of Raw in the sense that so much – Stuff happens, not just in the main event where obviously Austin wins the title back, but even on the lower card where you have the kickoff of the Val Venus Kayentai feud and the uh, and Yamaguchi sign being in there as well. So, uh, yeah, I I I was quite uh, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. If I can for just a moment here. There will be no stopping. <laughs> it's when you go harder than somebody, man. This right here is domination. It's the Brawl for All theme. It really That's is. That's amazing. I never even realized that. But it, but yeah, you can hear it in the background mm-hmm. there. Well, goddamn. It's one of those classic recyclings of theme songs. Perhaps the best one I can think of would be maybe uh, Ernest the Cat Miller's theme song being recycled <laughs> Brodus for Brodus Clay. Clay. Or, or actually the Patriots theme being recycled for Kurt Angle. That's, that's I think that's going to be the best one. I am still, and I still think I may be the only one that thinks this, but if you go back to whichever WWF the music it was that had the Bret Hart tribute song, You Light the Fire, whatever the fuck it's called. Yeah, you start the if fire. If you yeah. listen to that song, if you just try to pay attention to the instrument instrumentation in that song, to me, and again, it could just be me, but to me, it sounds very much like uh, 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 Ken Shamrock's first theme song in, in WWF. Uh, interesting. I kind of like Ken Shamrock's first theme song, actually. Yeah. Uh, did, does he have a different theme song, or is it the same one throughout? It's, it's, they, you know, they remix it and revamp it from time to time. Kind of like The Rocks, where The Rocks still using the Nation of Domination theme song now in 2016 <laughs> when he shows up. But Right. Did you like Owen Hart's theme song in this episode, by the way, where it's just him yelling things? <laughs> like, when he, when he started cutting his promo uh, in the Shamrock segment, he started cutting his promo, but his own theme song his was was basically him yelling over himself as yeah. he was about to cut the promo. I was... I, he's I, being like, it's a, enough is enough, and it's time for a change! I was always a fan of that of that song. That's I think it was my second favorite Owen Hart theme song. Um, the first one, of course, being his, his first one when he was, when he became the King of Hearts, that kind of, uh, synthesizer-y one. I was always a fan of that yeah. one. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the one. So what you're saying the second favorite one is, is this one with him yelling shit? If this is the one that has the, this, the, the music, the, with the, 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 one, the weird, this was basically the just weird like, factory noises and the siren and that one. But no, that was, this was, so this, this was, was just him yelling. Of, it was just the Nation of Domination oh, okay. theme with him yelling like, 
I tried to be a nice guy. I snapped. Yeah. Like, oh, this, it's, it's not no, but good. My second one was the one where it starts with, enough is enough, and it's time for a change. And then it's that weird kind of machiny noise. Yep. Bam, 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 bam. Digga, 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 digga. That one. I think that's yeah. my second favorite one. <laughs> I just realized I've done a lot of singing on this episode. It's worth it, though. It's, it's theme songs. It's, it's important <laughs> stuff. But yeah, all in all, I'd say thumbs up for me on this episode of Raw. Would you uh, concur? Yeah. Like you said, I think they could have done more with uh, with with Mick, but uh, given the fact that the night before he'd been completely knocked out for two minutes, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't surprise me that all they did was just keep him in the background and be like, why don't you sit this one out, Micker? That was easily the biggest surprise to me, though, because I was like, I was looking back on this, I was like, okay, King of the Ring 98, obviously Foley goes off the cell, and obviously I knew we were covering Raw as well, so I was like, I wonder what they have in, in store for Mick on Raw, and it turns out... Nothing. Absolutely, absolutely <laughs> fucking nothing. He gets to stand around while Kane cuts a voice box promo, so w- good use good use of Foley <laughs> there, really good. So maybe maybe on the next episode he'll get... I, I, don't, I don't fucking know. Tune in next week to see what Mick Foley does, <laughs> maybe, if he's on the next show. Kind of like how the, the WWE likes to present it, like, you know, Austin cut the Austin 316 promo, and then it was, like, straight to the stars, when in reality he was, like, on the pre-show at SummerSlam two months later or something like that. So, oh, that narrative. <laughs> but anyway, I think we can wrap it up from there. So, as always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugebex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. And Adam, before we depart, would you like to remind the fans where they can catch you outside of this fine podcast? Uh, Of course, it is the Rundown Wrestling Podcast every Thursday on uh, live on YouTube and then uploaded to Podomatic, Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play after that. Uh, Facebook.com slash Rundown Wrestling. Uh, we post the links uh, when we go live so you can participate in the episodes. We do have a chat room that is monitored by my co-host, Jason. Um, and then, like I said, we do have uh, some other folks who show up from time to time. Troy, Andy, Raccoon Reigns. The, uh, I'm going to say it, I'm going to say the only wrestling podcast in existence uh, with a Raccoon co-host. Uh, and we're, I think that's a fair statement. We're very proud of that acclaim. Um, yeah, so facebook.com slash rundown podcast at, uh, sorry, facebook.com slash rundown wrestling at rundown podcast on Twitter because rundown wrestling was too many characters. Um, and, uh, and yeah, sub- subscribe on iTunes. Uh, search for the rundown wrestling podcast. Fantastic. You can hear, all, you so, can hear all my plugs from my, from my show dates at the end of, at the end of our episode. So, so stay tuned for that. There you go. There you have it. And of course, as is the tradition, whenever a guest host joins the Raw Attitude podcast, I must ask the same question. Do you have a favorite match, promo, or moment that you would like for me to play at the end of the show? Oh, man. I had one and I completely forgot what it was. I, so many I prepped for this and I still completely forgot. I don't know. I got, we might just have to play, uh, we might just have to play Triple H talking about being bisexual about three times in a row. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Because I honestly don't remember what it was. I had one when I was watching. I was like, I gotta remember this, and I completely forgot to write it down. Wah, wah. Well, if if you remember it, you can text me later, and I can put it. Okay. In. And so I have nothing further to add about this episode. So after I play Adam's audio, I'm going to leave you with the clip of 
what else? Mick Foley talking about Hell in a Cell. This clip is from his DVD, For All Mankind, The Life and Career of Mick Foley. And you'll also hear some sound bites from a few other people who were there that night, including Terry Funk, Jim Ross, and Michael P.S. Hayes. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. And once again, thank you, Adam, from the Rundown Wrestling Podcast for joining this episode of the show for a record third time. Would you care to join again at some point for the fourth? Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. Oh, fantastic. So enjoy those clips, fans, and we will catch you next time out. You're not bilingual? Huh? You're not bilingual? There's a lot of bi things I am, but lingual is not one of them. Hey, wait a minute. Did I just mean to say that? I don't think you did, but be that as it may, we're live. I felt like when I entered the Hell in a Cell in 1998 uh, with The Undertaker, I felt, A, that I didn't belong in that a match of that magnitude because I didn't think my character was there. I thought uh, the, the changes had been damaging to me. And I, I certainly had no idea, you know, when I entered that cell that no one would ever care about anything I did before or after. We discussed it and knew that it had to be started somewhere different to be something special. And Mick wanted that match to be special. And I, I mentioned starting from the top. Hardly anybody backstage had any idea what was going to happen in that Hell in a Cell match between Foley and The Undertaker. My God, I had no idea that they were going to go to the extreme they did. They're right above us, folks, and I don't like it a damn bit. It was Foley's body hitting wood, hitting concrete. So in my mind's eye, I'm thinking, well, an average human being cannot live through that ordeal. And obviously, Mick Foley was far from being an average human being. And look at you are kidding me. In the hell is he standing? Lo and behold, somehow, you know, Mick, knowing that he's got to deliver for this audience, and for The Undertaker, he wills himself back into this match. Are you kidding me? He wants to go back up. He gets off the stretcher, and he climbs up to the top again. It, it was just surreal. through there and when he came through that ring he hit that mat believe me is that mat's not soft and he was out and I knew he was hurt bad his eyes were just totally glassed over I was scared to death for when I go to stand up and I can't you know it's it's sad but it's also powerful because the match should have ended and then I see him crawling over, he's outside the ring, and I, he's got a tooth in his nose, and he's kind of got a perverse smile on his face, like, 
I'm not dead yet. You may think I'm done, but I'm not done. And man, that just that brought me completely into the whole storyline. That was like, this stuff is good. Mr. McMahon came up to me after the cell. I was in, uh, in pretty rough shape, you know. Um, my tooth had ended up in my nose. I had a collection of injuries from you know, dislocated shoulder. My jaw had been injured. A bunch of stitches underneath my lip. Um, uh, bruised kidney. And he said, you have no idea how much I appreciate what you've done to this company. But I never want to see anything like that again. And he told me he's going to place a governor on me. <laughs> then he had to explain what a governor was. It's, well, you put it on a car that won't allow it to exceed a certain speed because I was going faster <laughs> and driving more perilously than, you know, than I should have. And so that set the bar, you know, ridiculously high. And fortunately, you know, things have changed where if a guy gets knocked out during a match, you know, the match ends and rightfully so. But I think part of the mystique of that match and part of the part of the emotional journey it takes viewers on is that that match didn't end i don't know if you could ever recapture that emotion you certainly can't plan it it's a it's a it's a roller coaster for people who see more than the clips if they actually go and watch that match it's it's powerful